So, Brian, it's another week, another episode of Digital Noise. You ready to go? I'm Batman. Okay. Um, I am the knight. Well, yeah, we are covering a Batman title this week. But anyway, do you have the whole list of titles ready to go? I'm not a man. I'm an idea. I can't be killed. Yeah, um, that's great and all, but uh, we really need to get started. We're running kind of late. Evildoers, beware. The cowl of the bats. Would Batman like a beer? Batman is the knight. He doesn't... Oh, yeah, actually, that sounds really good. the Chex Mix, and the Crucifix, because it's time for another Digital Noise October edition here at oneofus.net. This is, of course, the Blu-ray DVD review podcast that haunts your eardrums and believes the scariest thing imaginable is an empty media shelf. That's true. Because it, it is. Oh, Jesus, that just gave me the shivers. Right? I feel like we need to... If you if you have a house that doesn't have many Blu-rays or DVDs, we will come and do an exorcism of your... your Media ghost deficit. I have this idea of, like, criminals been told we had a lot of media at my house, pulling up, getting here, and then just looking crestfallen when they realize, we're going to need another truck. Exactly. <laughs> it's like the worst home invasion film you could possibly imagine. I am your host, Brian Salisbury. Lock your doors. And I am joined by my fiendish co-host, a remnant of the old world, older than mankind and wider than the known universe, Mr. Christopher Lawrence Cox. Are you calling me old and fat? No, I meant the world you're from. You know what? Fine. Yeah, let's let's just go with that. We'll we'll leave that right it where is it is. It's technically true. But. <laughs> I didn't think about that. That's kind of funny. Anyway, I want to remind you guys that this show, just like all of our content at One of Us, is available on iTunes if you just search for One of Us in the podcast section, or you can find us on Stitcher. You can also like the website on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. You can also follow this show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast, D-I-G-I NoiseCast. And please do consider becoming a subscriber, a subscriber, a subscriber, a subscriber even, to one of us.net. the beer back. No, no, it's mine. It's mine. Uh, actually, Chris and I are uh, going to be doing something for October for subscribers. It's actually pretty exciting. Uh, doing some horror movie commentaries. A bunch of them. Yay. So many horror movie commentaries. You got to be a subscriber to see them. Got to be a subscriber to see them. So oh. jump on that bandwagon. Yeah, because it's a cool bandwagon. It's cool. We like. It's a wagon and it's got a band. It's made of wood, you know, so that's probably a good thing. It has big creaky wheels. Yeah, because, you know, we would use a bandwagon and not like a station wagon because, as you have mentioned before, I do have an affinity for archaic technology. So, <laughs> absolutely, it's a bandwagon. Oh, and I do want to let you guys know we have a new uh, YouTube show. <laughs> Just making me laugh. The station wagon and the Halloween thing is like Halloween run. You know what? That would be an easy crossover because what's the what's the car that Michael Myers steals when he breaks out of the asylum? A station. Wagon. It's a station wagon. Oh my god! It's all making sense now. It's he's one of the Griswolds. He's the lost Griswold. <laughs> he's the original Rusty. That's what it is. That's what Michael Myers' whole rage and inner blackness comes from the fact that he was the original Rusty and was cast aside. He's like if you know he's going to be in every movie soon. It's the shape of things to come. Ah, bop, 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 rim shot. 
Anyway, uh, we have a new YouTube show I want to tell you guys about called Nostalgia Destroyers. Uh, it is a retro video game show where Dustin and Mark play the video games from their youth to see if they still hold up. Uh, you know, these games that we all love, but once you take the rose-colored glasses off, are they still enjoyable to play, or are they just a big old mess? So it's a show to see if their nostalgia holds up, or if it gets destroyed. That's that's the general concept. I, I'm glad they're doing it and not me, because I've always been one of those people. Like, I can't play games that came out on the previous system. I'm like, whatever. This is so archaic. <laughs> See, and that's crazy. Well, not crazy. It makes total sense when you think about the two of us, because I can't play the newer games. Yeah. There's just way too much shit. Like, wait, you? Ha- I have to I have to consider 360 degrees of viewing space? Nope. Scroll that sideways. So that's all I want. You're not getting an Oculus Rift is what I'm guessing. No. No, not <laughs> at all. I just want it for porn. I couldn't even do the Virtual Boy. There's no way I'm going to do the Oculus Rift. No one could do the virtual board. That's true. That's why it didn't last. Ooh, red CRT. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, it's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. You've got mail. Thank you, Torgo. And Torgo, you're looking especially festive this year for Halloween. Torgo's dressed like a giant jack-o'-lantern. It's crazy. The funny thing is, the uh, at the one of my other jobs, of which I have many, uh, Museum of the Weird, they have a giant monitor lizard whose name is Torgo. Nice. <laughs> I love it. You gotta love that. Uh, our first question comes from Daniel Walter, who says, Outside of well-known titles like VHS Creepshow and Trick or Treat, what are some other spooktastic horror anthology flicks you'd recommend? I uh, guess we got to go with Amicus first, right? Uh, well, you, you mean you're talking specifically of Asylum? Yes. Well, Asylum, uh, Tales from the Crypt, uh, Vault of Horror. Um, oh, gosh. Now I'm forgetting a couple of them. But the, Amicus was sort of the, the rival of, of Hammer Films, and they made a, a ton of these excellent horror anthologies, the best of which being, as Chris mentioned, Asylum. Um, that is very true. Those are all quite good. I've seen. I've never seen Asylum, though. Believe it or not. Really? Yeah. Oh, you'd seen, love it. I just know because you talk about it a lot. You would love it. I'm sure I would because I love that whole period of British horror. Uh, speaking of one of my favorites is with Boris Karloff, Black Sabbath. Oh uh, yes, yes, yes. Which has the creepiest dummy ever set to film. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not supposed to be a dummy in there. It's it's supposed to be like this dead woman who's like not really dead or whatever. But oh my god, it's yeah. like it haunted. I couldn't close my eyes because I'd see it. It's so terrifying. It's like, it was so horrible. Uh, and then, of course, how can we not mention Twilight Zone the movie? Twilight Zone the movie, which absolutely, is really, really, really good. I actually like. Uh, was it Tales from the Dark Side? Oh, really? I've never actually the seen that one. Either. It's actually pretty good. I avoided it. For a long time, because the I, TV series is so chintzy. Yeah, and it was a '90s. You know, and I, I I've been rediscovering over the last couple of years that my previously held notion that the '90s were shit for horror is really not true. But there was a lot of good stuff that came out. It was just blanketed by a lot more shit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know what's funny? People keep telling me Tales from the Hood is actually pretty good. And There's some good shit that in that. Either. There's actually some good shit in Tales from the Hood. I was I was I w- I'm surprised to hear myself say that, but it's it's true. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, what else? Trilogy of Terror. Trilogy of Terror. Of course, which will, yeah. like, I know you won't watch because it's got the little haunted doll and no, it. You don't fuck like that Sunni doll. Fuck that shit. And then, uh, you've got to mention Three Extremes, which is an Asian, sure. uh, one that has a, I believe a Takashi Miike short in it. Am I wrong about that? 
Uh, I don't think you're wrong. I think he does have a, but have a short in there. But it's really... You want to watch a heart, a heart uh, anthology that is fucked up. <laughs> That's... Yeah. It's an Asian go. horror anthology. Need we say any more? It's messed up. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen the second one, but the first one in particular is really... Yeah. Takashi cool. Miike's segment is called Box. There you go. So there you have it. Yeah, there's... Uh, you have a Hong Kong director, a South Korean director, and a Japanese director making a horror anthology. Seriously, prepare yourself for some fucked up shit. Yep. That's all I have to say on that. Our next question comes from Michael. Uh, call me Ishmael. McCall me Ishmael. Uh, I don't know what I did just there. Uh, is there a film or film series that you would like to see remade or rebooted into a horror version of itself? Yeah, The Hangover. <laughs> Where they actually get hanged? Ooh, they, get, they all die. <laughs> I'm tired of this shit. <laughs> Seriously. I'm tired of Zach Galifianakis at this point. Just like, they all die. But you can see that, right? Where it's like, yeah, they go there, they all get into trouble, and it's because there's like some horrific like murderous group who's killing them one by one. I'm like, yeah, I kind of want to see that movie. I was going to say Home Alone uh, as like a really creepy, severe, violent home invasion film. And then I realized The Collector exists, yeah. which is pretty much Home Alone if... The Kevin McAllister in that movie—I'm sorry—if the Macaulay Culkin from The Good Son was the Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone, it would True. be the Collector. Uh, so instead, I'm going to go with Star Trek. I think what uh, they need to do with the next Star Trek is that the the Enterprise flies through a black hole and encounters the fucking event horizon. You know, Star Trek is, of course, like any other long-running genre show, had horror-type episodes, but there's never—I can't even think of one that's just an all-out totally oh my god what the fuck horror episode and yeah i'd like at the very least to see i mean why not with the movies they've like the i guess first contact is as close as it comes that tries with plays with a lot of horror tropes in the middle mm. of it because the borg are pretty fucking scary but to like have the idea like they all you know the whole crew wakes up on some planet underneath the surface in a surface in a series of caverns caverns and the descent monsters are yes. in there yeah that's what i'm talking about <laughs> and then that spock's still trying to take readings it's like spock i think we should just run now uh uh yeah don't try quarter try getting the fuck out of here we should split up that is not logical <laughs> <laughs> i'll be right back i would watch that movie i would watch the movie or you know what die hard where john mcclain figures out the reason that nobody can kill him is because he's already dead he's a fucking zombie so it's like a killer zombie movie where he's just taking out everybody he was more of a Highlander, really, but. or or uh, his character from Unbreakable is actually John McClane because Something he realizes like that. that he can't. Anyway, we're we're spitballing, but uh, obviously this question very good. I liked it quite a bit. Thank you so much. I also wanted to uh, before we move on, I want to wish a happy birthday or saw if it was scary. Oh, you with the commentary. I want to wish. Oh my God, I'm going to butcher your name, sir, and I am very sorry. I want to wish Michael Matrogen. Uh, a happy birthday because he asked us to. So there you go. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. There's your present. Now shut up. There's your present. <laughs> Me butchering your name. For Halloween, I butchered your name. Congratulations. We're going to close the letterbox before we embarrass ourselves any further and shove that right back under Chris's bed and move on to the reviews. And reminding you yet again that every title we talk about will have a little link at the bottom of the page. Uh, if you click on that link and go to Amazon, even if you don't buy that item, as long as you buy something via our link, it benefits the site. We really do appreciate that. If you're doing some Halloween shopping, if you exchange gifts at Halloween, like I think everybody should, use our links. It is the best holiday of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Absolutely. You should have said that like Christopher Walken. I'm just it's saying. the most wonderful time 
of the year. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you have monkey, and then I'm also a monkey for your... Dance, <laughs> monkey, dance! <laughs> We're starting off today with something decidedly not horror, unless you're a vegetarian, and that is Chef. Yeah, you know, this is definitely not a movie for vegetarians. I point you to the scene where they go to Franklin's Barbecue, right. and in loving pornographic close-up, oh cut into a slice of Franklin's Barbecue brisket, oh, yeah. and then put it into their mouth. I mean, it really Oh, is. God. Like, oh, God. Oh. I saw this movie in the theater. The audience started, like, audibly moaning and groaning during Yeah, it's, it's food porn. Yeah, it's food it porn. really is. But what you've got is what I think is one of the best films that have come out this year. You know, I tend to agree with that. That flew under the radar for most people. And it's also one of the best movies that uh, writer, producer, director John Favreau has ever made. I would put this right up here with his Iron Man. It's kind of fit. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of fitting, though, that it flew under the radar because that's... That's how a lot of food trucks work. It's like you have to be told, like, oh, you haven't heard about this food truck? Oh, it's amazing. You got to go and check it out. It's it's very much like the uh, uh, the food truck culture where it's like it's very much about word of mouth. Well, not only is it a story about like this guy trying a, who was a you know a master chef, but got tired of basically like okay, I got the job most people wanted, but the owner is like, well, this menu works. Why would we change it? And it's like, okay, well, I don't I don't want any part of that. John Favreau playing the role, but. You know, and then going on the road with a new food truck, trying something new, trying something that may have been thought of as like a lesser thing to do by master chefs in general, but right. finding his real calling in it. It's not really about that. So much is it about him reconnecting with his younger son during the space of this road trip. And it turns into it's like a road trip movie. It's a food porn movie. It's a father son bonding film. And it's a really funny as hell comedy. Yeah, no, it's it works on pretty much every level that it, it attempts. And I really do think the heart and soul of the movie is how well uh, John Favreau and young actor M.J. Anthony play off of each other. Uh, you really do get the sense that, uh, you know, it's weird, too, because I think we talked about this on the review. In most cases where you have a, a dad who's, like, being neglectful or is too busy to, to spend time with his son, you almost get the sense that he doesn't even want the kid. Yeah. Whereas that's not the case in this movie at all, which I found a little bit more realistic. There's not this sort of forced alienation between them. Like, he still spends time with the kid. He very much loves his son. There's there's a definite connection there. It's just that his career keeps getting in the way. So it felt so much more genuine when they're actually on the road that they are – that the kid would want to go, one, and two, that the, the bonding doesn't have to overcome all these hurdles of like, oh, you never spend enough time with me. Oh, I'm angsty and jade. It's like, no, they just, they finally have the time and the, the project together to, to bond, and that's exactly what they do. I mean, that being said, this is the type of film you need to suspend your disbelief to a pretty big extent for. Number one, that his ex-wife, who he's still very close friends with and and still very much in it, you know, you're like, why did you even divorce type situation is Sophia Vergara. Mind you, John Favreau is currently in his really big stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a big star. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I mean, like, wide. No, no, no. I know. <laughs> he's a big star. And that the hostess of the restaurant he's working with, played by Scarlett Johansson, is someone that they have casual sex regularly. Yeah. Yeah, you know this what? seems unlikely. I mean, Master Chef or not, this seems unlikely. I'm sorry. If I'm going to write and direct my own movie and I'm going to star in it, those are the two women who are going to be interested in me. Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's in the fucking script. Deal with it. It's like, shouldn't you call Tony Collette or somebody? No. Or plausible? <laughs> no, Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> you know, 
fuck it though, because uh, it's I. It's, Sophia Vergara is really funny and charming in this, and she's not always capable of that. No, in the she, film work. she comes up shrill most of the time. Not in this movie, but in other other things. Yeah, like uh, the nanny or something, but, but Spanish, <laughs> Spanish treasure. <laughs> uh, but she is quite good in this. Scarlett Johansson has a very small role, but but she has kind of a you know important turning point. In, for the chef here in this conversation, he's starting to try to figure out what he wants to do. You've also got uh, Bobby Cannavale. Cannavale? Is that right? I think that's right. Um, uh, who is another, who's like a sous chef who kind of takes over his position, who he's good friends with. John Leguizamo, who, when he's good, he's really good. And yeah. here, he is kind of the sidekick best friend who goes with them on the road. He's got, uh, you know, John Leguizamo has had two great roles this year. Uh, this one is is a lot bigger, and he is sort of the 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 best friend character. But he's also really good in John Wick. He has a very oh, yeah. brief scene in John Wick, but he's really good in it. Very true. Uh, Dustin Hoffman is the the has a small role as the restaurant owner, and of course Robert Downey Jr., who always tries to gets called in to help out his friends because Favreau has him on speed dial. <laughs> right, <laughs> shows up in a brief but very funny role here. Um, but really, one of the more interesting things outside of the movie itself, in a sort of meta way, is Oliver Platt, right. who plays a food critic who, you know, previously was the biggest champion of John Favreau's character, but writes a scathing review of his restaurant, which is absolutely accurate. Yeah. You know? uh, but, you know, John Favreau freaks out, is unfamiliar with social media, so starts, like, responding to tweets, not realizing it's not private. Yeah. And gets kind of, like, kind of turns into a laughing stock because of it. Um, and it's interesting the way it goes from that full circle to him sort of, like, more understanding later on yeah. and even coming to peace with it. And it feels like, is this movie really about cowboys and aliens? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's even that relationship feels more genuine because most of the time when you have a movie where someone comes under fire from a critic, the critic is kind of painted with the same brush as he is in Ratatouille, where it's just right. like this like brooding, evil, snide figure who only wants to destroy everything. And Oliver Platt's character like is like, no, dude, I'm a big fan of yours. I... That's why I wrote that review is because I wanted you to do something new and different and you just kept doing the same thing and it was it was making me sad. And it was like, that feels a lot more genuine. Like, believe it or not, 90% of the critics out there don't want to destroy careers. No. That's not why we get into Even this. Even Kevin Smith. Even Kevin Smith. We don't want to destroy his career <laughs> because he'll do it for us. Uh, but no, it's it's really a genuine love of film and, and sometimes we get disappointed. You know, our heroes let us down sometimes and sometimes those can be the the most scathing reviews that we write and it's not because we want to see them destroyed it's because our hearts we, are broken we know they can do better yes exactly I, so i, and I felt I like think, like even more so that proves my point cowboys and aliens which even like after a while he kind of when talking about chef he admitted like look i kind of started to realize that the huge budgeted hollywood thing that's fine i can do it but my heart had gone out of it right i wanted to do something smaller more personal like where i started with swingers and this is what you get here, something, and and it shows. I mean, he's wearing his heart on his sleeve, and it's a joy to behold. Quite that frankly. being said, I actually like Cowboys and Aliens. I don't know. Really? Yeah, I don't hate it. I think it's good. Yeah, okay. I think it's fun. All right then. Uh, <laughs> anyway, this uh, the all the food in here was designed by food truck owner, uh, chef, and co-producer Roy, Roy Choi, who also serves as in a commentary on here along with John Favreau talking about it. And apparently, I haven't got a chance to listen to it, but apparently it's pretty interesting because not only they talk about the making of the movie, but as well as like all the details of the food in it. I mean, if you enjoyed the food porn level of this, this is probably the thing for you to listen well, to. Well, there's an authenticity to this movie because Roy actually trained John on how to be 
a uh, a real chef. And actually, one of the greatest things that I've ever gotten to do was during South by. Uh, they did a cooking demonstration for this movie as part of their press day. So I got to go and watch Roy Choi and John Favreau make uh, make dishes, and and Favreau was talking the whole time about like. Yeah, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know how this worked. But the whole time, he's like, as he's talking, he's like making this delicious, amazing Cuban sandwich that they let everybody try. And then like these, um, like these, uh, these pork rolls. And it was just like, oh my God, like this is, a- first of all, the food is amazing. And secondly, yeah. like you can tell that Favreau really did learn a lot from Roy. Yep. And this also comes with 10 and a half minutes of deleted scenes. Uh, so, and that's about it. But still, this is terrific stuff. If you have not seen this, this may not even be on your radar. Put it on your radar. Go pick this up. Put it on your menu. It is actually my pick of the week. Awesome. Uh, It it was a close fight between this and another title this week. And I think I went with the other title. Yeah, but it's it's just so good. Yeah, very, very good. Uh, One of the best films this year, no doubt about it. Moving on from there, we're going to talk about a little film called Hellion. <laughs> it sounded like you said Harry on. Harry on. Harry on. Harry on my way, way once son. <laughs> yep, both of our brains just went there. <laughs> and now we're here, and we might as well talk about There'll be Hogwarts still when you are done. <laughs> Lay a weary one to rest. Don't you cry no more. Do, 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 do. <laughs> we can For do the, the rest whole of thing. the show. We're just gonna just, that's all we're going to do. We're just going to do a, a Harry Potter theme version of, uh, of Carry On My Way. Yeah, time. it's just called Scaryoke at this point. <laughs> um, Hellion is actually one of the films that a lot of people don't know about, but in Austin we do, because this was made, written and directed by Kat Candler, who's sort of a local Austin film luminary, who's won a bunch of awards for short films over the years. This is, I believe, her first feature film. Um, I know she's worked on some other stuff I've seen that hasn't gotten a, a formal release yet, like Saturday Night Massacre. Um, do you remember? Did you get to see that one last year? I, I didn't. Massacre? I, I didn't, but I heard it was kind of like a horror version of Scooby-Doo. Yeah, pretty much. It was like if Scooby-Doo, you took, you made a Scooby-Doo movie, only it was dead serious the whole way, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay. Um Hellion is a very different type of film. Despite the title, you'd think it's like, oh, is this horror? No, it's not. But it, she did get manage to get Aaron Paul in here from Breaking Bad, who plays a kind of broken father. His uh, his wife, I, I, I can't remember if she left him or she's dead. But I think she left him, but... Uh, He's stuck with their two sons. At one point in the past, he freaked out and abandoned them for like three weeks. Uh, you know, what? Um, as it is, he's trying to get his shit back together. But the kids are kind of a mess, especially 13-year-old Jacob, uh, who is the, you know, the titular character, basically. He is a hellion. Like early on in the film, we see, a, you know, a local high school football game. And he and his friends are in the parking lot setting fire to and beating the shit out of a truck for no reason other than that's what you do when you're uh, to the worst level of juvenile delinquent. Holy shit. Uh He's a complete mess, and the dad doesn't know what to do with him, but the dad doesn't know what to do with himself. Aaron Paul is, like, drinking a lot. He's directionless. He's just... He's screwed up inside, and things get much worse when Child Protective Services show up, see their house is covered with beer cans and empty food cartons and what have you. See, you're just making me homesick. (laughs) And grab his little brother, Wes, and take him to live with his aunt, played by Juliette Lewis, for once not playing a complete crazy redneck. (laughs) She's just a regular, you know, run-of-the-mill, nice redneck. (laughs) 
That's good to know. <laughs> uh, you know, of course, this is ends up driving Jacob crazy, who's like has been very protective of his little brother. Uh, it it's driving Aaron Paul's character Hollis crazy because you know it's it's the state actually telling him you're not a worthwhile father, and he doesn't know what to do with it. And of course, everything ends up you know building towards a situational climax that has a lot to do with like. Hollis, who's always sort of been ostensibly the leader of his little group of juvenile delinquent friends, losing control of them when he attempts something to try and regain – to bring his little brother back into the family. And this suffers from a lot of the things that you would – that are not atypical for a first-time film. Um, it's very beautifully shot, although there is a overuse of, uh, of the handy cam, which I think is starting to become – endemic towards the indie film industry as a whole it's like guys seriously stop it get yourself steady cam yeah yeah <laughs> seriously put it on a tripod for fuck's sake um you're not tony scott but it's really the script that the problems are with that it's this is interesting and it has really good performances but it never when its ending doesn't feel completely earned it doesn't get to the it, it builds towards something too fast without developing the other kid characters as much as they should and at the end i was like this is more of a sort of – this is the type of film, first-time director, that you go back years later and go – you could tell she had something, but, you know, she wasn't quite there yet. Yeah. You know, she's not bursting onto the scene like John Favreau did with Swingers, you know. She's – uh, it's interesting, and I think it is worth watching, but it's not the film that – it's not anything people are going to be talking about at length. I got you. Yeah. Well, maybe with the next one, we'll see what, uh, what Kat brings us on the next round. We're going to move on from there to my favorite movie this week, my pick of the week, which is Cold in July. See, this is the one that, yeah, sure enough, was like, boy, it was I, a close call. I knew this had to be the other one you were talking about, and I completely agree with you that this was neck and neck with Chef, but holy crap, Cold in July. Uh, this is directed by Jim Mickle, who also <laughs> brought us uh, Stakeland and the We Are What We Are remake. And I'll, I'll say about him, you know, considering what I just said about Cat Candler, he's one of those directors you're like, solid early efforts but nothing that you were like okay this is blowing me out of the park it's clear this is a director to watch right but he's working his way towards something better i think the and, seeds were there but you know nothing yeah, truly both, remarkable both those films are, are good films they're mm -hmm. not great films this is a great film i absolutely <laughs> agree this is based on a story by an old friend of ours, Mr. Joe Lansdale. Hey, Joe R. Lansdale. Joe Lansdale. He finally gets a movie made of one of his works that is worthy of the work it's based on. I'm going to be very, very careful about the plot description that I give you here. Basically, what happens is that you have Michael C. Hall, yes, Dexter himself, who, by the way, disappears into this role. Oh, totally. It was 10 minutes before I even recognized it was him. Yeah. I was like, holy shit, I thought it was Stephen Dorff, actually. I mean, des <laughs> despite the fact that he's a, a character embroiled in a violent situation, he couldn't be more of a different character than Dexter. Yeah. He's he's a good man, but he also, like, he's pretty white trash. Like, like just just the nature of, of where he lives. He's just I mean... I don't even know if I'd go so far as to say white trash, because he's not like, you know, he's not going out partying with his friends right. and his truck and stuff. He just lives in a small Texas town. He doesn't have a lot of, like, look towards the future going on. But he no. does have a rockin' mullet. He does have a rockin' mullet. He has mullet. a rockin' mullet. Was this, in the, this was set in, like, the late 80s or yes, something Yes, like yes. It's definitely late 80s because everybody has VCRs. Yeah, is, okay. I was like, aha, aha, aha. <laughs> uh, so what happens is uh, one night he hears uh, some noise coming from his living room he shows up in his living room and someone is robbing his house 
and there, he doesn't really know what to do. He's got a gun, and then something happens, and the person robbing the house ends up dead. And they're like, well, good job. You know, what, you case closed. You shot an intruder. And then from there, everything that happens to him is a series of really bizarre entanglements with people he doesn't know, leading to progressively darker and darker storylines. You know, I think one of the most fascinating things that this film does is that it introduces Sam Shepard as the father of uh, the 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 kid that was killed, mm-hmm. or at least ostensibly anyway, yeah. who shows up as like Robert De Niro in Cape Fear pretty much. Like, motherfucker, yeah. I'm going to tear your life apart. Yeah. Who ends up becoming this completely three-dimensional character whose relationship with Michael C. Hall changes into something you couldn't possibly have seen coming. Once you think you know what this movie is, it pulls a left turn. And, and then once you think, oh, this is what it is now, it pulls another fucking yeah, left turn. Yeah, I mean, as if that's not enough, you get Don Johnson showing up, <laughs> chewing up the scenery, having a great time as this, like, was he, he's like ex-cop bounty hunter now he, or He's like a that? private investigator named Jim Bob. <laughs> Literally, his name is Jim Bob. with long horns on it. Yeah. He's like, just like, he plays the role of Texas, pretty much. He is Texas. <laughs> he's the embodiment of Texas. They're like, fuck you, McConaughey, I'm taking this one. <laughs> right? Hey, you know, a hell of a good role for Johnson, who's clearly trying to make a comeback right now with some interesting and very southern roles. He, he played a small role on the From Dust Till Dawn TV series that once he wasn't on it anymore, kind of lost interest. Well, all also, he was in Django Unchained as a plantation owner, so yep. I guess he's just figured that the the South is how his career is going to rise again. Right. I mean, before it was Miami, but wrong. He had to head a little <laughs> bit more west. Apparently, so. go west, old man. But yeah, that's you know that's one of the things about this movie that I love so much is that it doesn't allow you to get comfortable with the story. It doesn't allow you to settle on what this is, and then once it's all said and done, it's a really interesting story that kind of speaks to how far you're willing to go to be a good man, like how far your moral code will allow you to go. And- what does it mean to be a father yes. in a wider than just taking care of your, your own children sense? Absolutely. Know? The responsibility that comes with that, the moral quandaries. It's He asks some really interesting questions and the characters make some really interesting decisions. And it's weird that this is so many has elements of all these different genres like film noir, detective story, procedural, revenge tragedy, coming of age tale, a horror film, and yet it's not defined by any of those things and no. it comes up with a movie that feels like it's completely its own thing. Every every shift in, you know, genre trapping is in service of the story. The story is definitely the paramount here and you don't always see that even in smaller films that are genre based. Sometimes it's about serving the genre and getting, you know, delivering a good time to the audience. This is all about the story and every change that comes along is fully in service to the story. And I got to say, one of the things I love the most about this movie is its soundtrack. This score reminded me of the Tangerine Dream score from Thief. Ah, it is beautiful. It's very syntho, but it's also very moody. Uh, it's actually by the guy who has done Jeff mu- Grace, who has done all the music for Ty West movies. He did House of the Devil. He did Innkeepers. In fact, um, the, the makers are very aware of how good the score is because one of the extras is an isolated score here. There you go. You can just listen to that, which which is you should because cool. it's amazing. Uh, there's also two commentaries on here. Uh, there are about 16 minutes of deleted scenes, including a much longer version of the drive-in sequence where you really get to see. Don Johnson go even like be even more of a character, which nice. makes it worth seeing him for alone. Uh, there's a pre-visualization te- tests with optional commentary where uh, they basically they discuss the use of the previous software to re- replace storyboarding. Uh, 
and then there's a Q&A with Jim Mickle, uh, Joe R. Lansdale, and George R. R. Martin, strangely enough. Who he, well, the reason he's there is he owns the theater where they were doing the Q&A. Yeah, talking about this. Otherwise, you're like, wait a minute. Wait. What? <laughs> no, this is technically a spinoff of Game of Thrones. Oh, man. They, they, he really needs to catch up with those with the TV show if they're already in 1980s Texas. Yeah, right. yeah it's, it's a... It's a uh, Epilogue. <laughs> it's like the end of Harry Potter. It's like a little coda. Yeah. They, what happens is that Don Johnson is actually the last of the Starks. Ah, yeah. see, that so, makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. Now, this is this is absolutely my pick of the week. Tremendous film all the way around. I had so much fun watching it. And by the end, I was just so excited that I had gotten to see it. Like, that's that's the, the mark of a truly great movie for me. If by the end of it, I'm just like, man, I'm really excited that I saw that movie. It's just that good. It's just that good. Yeah, it's one of the, like, Southern Gothic's really made a big, like, return to form. I mean, it's a huge thing right now, and a lot of the best stuff that's coming out falls under that category. If you were a fan of the show True Detective, you're going to want to see this. Yeah, absolutely. The one, the one problem I do have, though, don't know what the title means. <laughs> Cold in July. No idea what that title means. I, I, presumably, it takes place in July, and the idea is is that they're still haunted and feel cold, and because of the events of the story. Maybe. Yeah. Don't know. <laughs> yeah. At no point does someone turn to the screen. It's like it's cold in July. In order to complete this mission, we're going to have to be cold in July. <laughs> it's a club called July, and it's air conditioned ah, way too much see that would make sense yeah well moving on from uh one uh i don't there's a there's a common thread here i don't know what it is so i'm just gonna go to the rover <laughs> roving 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 keep guy pierce roving keep him roving in the apocalypse in australia just keep him out of your rearview mirror basically <laughs> is what you need to do uh the rover is well, you know what is it about australia that makes it like the place where it is best suited for post-apocalyptic film i think it's because of outside of sydney the rest of the country kind of looks like it's been struck by the apocalypse. It's just a lot of wide open wilderness and there are still, uh, you know, little shackle towns and like, it's just, you don't even have to build sets. It's just like, this is where the apocalypse happened. Point a camera at it. And I don't think it's ever clear exactly what happened. It was an econ global economic collapse. The collapse is yeah. all they keep referring yeah. to. So it's like, it's not like there are zombies or, or, you know. Mutants. That being said, there are elements of the original Mad Max that you'll certainly rec rec uh, recognize here. Not yeah. not the later ones. Not Road Warrior like, even. It's almost a superhero apocalyptic films, but the original where it's like, this should just happen pretty recently. Yeah. And some people are still living more or less normal lives, even though everything's falling apart. And Guy Pierce is um, like a more, to be clear, actually more of a Road Warrior type Mad Max character where he's all alone, loner, driving on the road in his car. You're not sure why or what he's trying to do but basically when he stops in this bar to get a drink uh some guys come have this hysterical car accident yeah <laughs> the way it's shot is really funny yeah it's uh, it's it's breathtaking and hilarious at the same time uh this group of guys and they survive the accident get out and steal his car because they can't get their truck moving he manages to get their like sees what's happened runs out gets their truck moving and starts chasing them and lets them know, like, I'm going to follow you to the ends of the earth to get this car back. They manage to get away, but that doesn't stop him. He's going to keep going. And along the way, he manages to find the younger brother who they <laughs> left for dead of one of the guys who's played in a really startlingly, like, I didn't think he had it in him way by Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson playing this complete 
country bumpkin yeah. uh, who has clearly been displaced because he's in Australia, and he's playing like some guy from, I don't know, Florida Panhandle, Alabama. I don't know. He's just – you can barely understand what he says because he's got such a thick southern drawl. But, yeah, his performance is like really kind of pained, and like you can tell that the character is trying so hard to uh, to be able to put his thoughts into words even though he's very limited mentally, and it's just like – Man, Pattinson, why aren't you doing this all the fucking time? Yeah, it's like, wow, you... I mean, every once... I, I've seen him do other things where I'm like, okay, you've got some talent, but you're not really picking stuff that gives you a chance to show it. This is the first time I really remember showing something where it's like, okay, this was a bold move for you to play a character... A, a wildly unattractive character like yeah. this. Uh, and he is the little brother, as we said, of Henry, played, once again, unrecognizably by Scoot McNary. Scoot McNary! No one knows what that guy looks like. Everything, yeah. He's the Lon Chaney without like lots of like special effects makeup because just whatever he's in, you're like, I didn't r- realize that was him. He's like Gary Oldman before Batman begins. Where people are like, what does Gary Oldman look like? Well, see, I, no I, I was Sid and Nancy guy way back when, so I've been. A so Gary you Oldman. thought he looked like Sid Vicious? Yeah, always. I was see, like, that's my point. Wait, that was him. He cut the mohawk off. <laughs> There was no mohawk. There was spiky hair, but that's neither here or there. So no. it ends up in sort of like a road trip movie as they're trying to like track down these guys and uh Ray, who is the the Pattinson character, is like slowly forming more of a bond with uh Guy Pierce's character, like 'cause he's he's kind of assuming the role of the protective older brother for him. Right, exactly. Uh, Which his actual older brother had left him to die, so there's there's unresolved issues there, so he does start to to form a bond. You know what's funny? The whole time I was watching this movie, you know what movie I couldn't stop thinking about? What's that? Corvette Summer with Mark Hamill. Was that just because you liked that movie? No, or? because in that movie, Mark Hamill like goes across the country and will not stop at anything until he gets his car back. Right. And I was oh, like, right. I was like, this is like Corvette Summer after the Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> And with a better actor than Mark Hamill. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's true. But yeah, it's this is a very I think what's what's gonna be the challenge for most people in this movie, and was I will admit at points for me, is that there are these very pensive sort of doldrums in the movie where it does sort of because it's it's trying to examine the full breadth of like what it means to be living in, in this in this time and what it means to uh be right on the cusp of losing your humanity forever. And there's just a lot of like really emotional there's a lot of emotional content that is examined through a lot of sort of still, moody cinematography and just very slow. I mean, it's you're basically filming in the middle of a desert. There's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of places to run to, so they they really do play it a lot internally. And I think there are going to be moments that lose people because of that. But otherwise, I think this is a tremendous film. Well, it's not what you would call a traditional action film. Even not though there are in the least. Some very brutal, violent sequences in here, and uh, it's more about the this strange bond that's developing between these two characters. You know, that neither one of them was expecting or really wants, but happens anyway over time. And it, yeah, it's kind of quiet for most of it. It's it's very, like you said, very beautifully shot. And even the ending is like, you know, the epilogue when you find out why Guy Pierce wanted this car back so much is just sort of this bittersweet, kind of sad and lonely affair. Yeah. Um, and I love it. I, I, I love really, the really love the ending of this, but I had to retrospect on it a bit first to think about it and realizing the reason why he wants the car back so much kind of to some degree for a guy who's a, used to being such a loner reflects on why he has ends up having sort of a relationship uh, with Robert Pattinson the way that he does. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely know? it does. And it's funny, too, because if you watch it again, 
there are things that happen at the beginning of the movie when he's first chasing the car that you'll notice and you'll go, oh, now I know why they filmed why why he made that choice and why they filmed it exactly that way. And it's it's really fascinating. It's nice to see Guy Pierce making interesting choices again too, who sometimes got lost for a bit inside the machine, making crap like the time machine. Uh, <laughs> got caught in the machine. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I remember L.A. Confidential, still one of my all-time favorite movies. Like, wow, who is this guy? Uh, and then it was like, oh, well, I guess that's what he had. That's Guy Pierce is who that guy is. And watch him come back and do smaller, like, intense stuff like this is it, – it's good. I want to see him play more roles with this sort of intensity again. Uh, he doesn't need to say much because a lot comes through just his quiet, brooding performance. Did you see Animal Kingdom? Yeah, you know, I was not a crazy fan of Animal Kingdom. A lot of people loved it. I was not one of those people, but I, I could see what people liked it, and that's the same director. I yeah, think. that was this director's previous yeah, film. Yeah, David Mashadden, who also uh, uh, co-wrote her, uh, Hesher, which I did like quite a bit. Right so, on. Anyway. I think this is a very, it's a very uh, interesting addition to the sort of post-apocalyptic genre. Yeah. Uh, it is not an action film by traditional standards, but it is a movie filled with great performances, filled with really interesting cinematography, and a character that you will find yourself strangely drawn to no matter what terrible things he does. True, and he does do some terrible things. Indeed. Well, moving on from the rover, we're going to talk about some other terrible things. Delivery, the beast within! Okay, now, I have to preface this with saying that apparently there were a lot of critics online who really liked this film. I'm just going by what you said, because I was not at all going to watch this. I... I don't know if it's because I have never been a parent, but I have yet to see a movie with Demon Baby that actually really affects me that much. I mean, I admit Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby is a well-made film, but I never particularly found it scary. And I think maybe that's that. I've never been watching with concern over a pregnant person that I loved, you know, right. worried about every little thing and change. And maybe that's like, essential to finding these sort of films scary. But for me, this was just yet another low-budget horror doing the same fucking story. We saw a film, what, last year in the theater. Remember mm -hmm. that? That was, like, another one of these, your baby is possessed by the devil. Yeah. And while you're pregnant, a bunch of scary shit's gonna happen. Funny story, I actually liked that movie, but now I can't even remember the fucking title Yeah, of I remember it. you liked it, I didn't. And what I was, was the like, name of that fucking movie? I don't remember. I remember a couple scenes from it, but... Um, <laughs> I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the oh, idea here is this, and, and it's got a neat setup for a found footage thing, which is that at least it's taken to more of a logical extreme, whereas this couple, Rachel and Kyle, played by Laurel Vale and Danny Barclay, are this young couple. They've had trouble conceiving. They've had, uh, a, they had a miscarriage before. They have another baby. They're get, they get pregnant again. They decide they sign a deal to do this very happy-dappy reality show about it, following them. And, you know, the text scrolls, like... We filmed, like, the first episode, the first two episodes, something like that, and we'll watch, you know, basically highlights of them here. So it's weird. The first 30 minutes of this, you're really watching what looks like the type of reality show you would never, ever, ever watch. So reality shows. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But, yeah. you know, the worst <laughs> worst example, like, most dull, I don't give a shit about your baby. <laughs> uh, but then she has, like, what she thinks is another miscarriage. They go in there. It's like, no, actually, somehow your baby's still alive. And then the trouble starts. Uh, they've moved into this house that has, like, you know, a crazy Spanish woman who comes in and starts screaming crazy Spanish stuff about the devil and whatever. And yep, they're like, oh, yep, get out of here, crazy Spanish woman. You know. <laughs> we never listen to you. <laughs> uh, and 
you know, obviously, like, the baby, you know, what we're supposed to take away from this, I guess, is that the baby did die, but now it's been possessed by the devil. And as the movie goes along, you've got cameras all through the house. There are cameramen walking around all the time and sound guys. And the couple is getting more and more pissed off about this scenario because the pregnancy is not going well. Their relationship is deteriorating. Uh, Rachel starts acting more and more crazy. Um little tiny weird glitches happen like when the you see their points that the camera will be looking at her and pan down the mirror and then her belly where she's pregnant is like all digitized looking and weird and you're like <laughs> that's a cheap effect and there's a lot of cheap effects that they do to try and make things scary here as it builds inevitably to a big violent ending but ultimately there's nothing you haven't seen here before a hundred times i mean at its best the couple is a lot more of a realistic couple than you usually see in these types of affairs. I actually bought them as a real couple and I bought the way their relationship was disintegrating. So I will hand that to delivery colon the beast within (laughs) grudgingly giving some praise to this movie. (laughs) But um, unfortunately this this great as the horror titles were last week. Unfortunately, it's going to be few and far between this week. And yeah. What we do have to talk about is not really that great. I hate that I was not on last week's show because, like, I didn't All even... All the good horror was last week. Well, fuck it. I guess we're done with horror. <laughs> Flip the table. <laughs> it's not scary. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I guess maybe if you're pregnant... Well, you probably shouldn't watch this, but if you have some connection to that, this could be scary to you. To me, I, it's just another found footage film rehashing the same shit. It's already been done multiple times. I can't recommend it. Fair enough. Well, moving on from there to something that... uh, Segway. Ghost in the Shell uh, has a new Blu-ray release. Segway. Segway. I don't know. Uh, You know, I want to... We'll do it in post. We'll do it in post. We'll fix it in post. I want to say this. I want to preface this review by saying I still don't get anime. I just... It's not my thing. I have tried several times. It's just not my cup of tea. I always go into it with an open mind because I always want the one movie to be that movie that like makes sure. it for me but i and ghost in the shell i had been told by numerous people is one of the best animes you know ever made so i was really excited and then i watched it and i'm like okay um ghost in the shell uh, is not a good anime for people who are just starting into anime not not one to cut your teeth on no and the reason is is that this is not only borrowing heavily from like so many of the elements of anime that existed, you know, uh, and manga that existed around it, you know, like a giant like cyborgs with multiple powers and lots of cultural stuff inside of it. I mean, it's like very, it doesn't bother to explain a lot of the stuff, but really it's more of a serious cyberpunk film. Like nobody had really made a good cyberpunk film yet at this point. And cyberpunk in literature in 1995, when this came out was a big thing. Authors like William Gibson uh, and, oh, God, how can I forget the name of the guy who actually lives in Austin? Shit. Um, another guy. <laughs> Bruce Sterling. Bruce Sterling. Bruce Sterling. That's it. Another guy. Another guy. <laughs> we'll call him the other guy. The other guy. Uh, it was turning into a huge thing. I think it's kind of like it plateaued and kind of leveled off these days. It doesn't seem to be as big anymore. Now it's got to be, if it's cyberpunk, it means it's also got to be Victorian cyberpunk. What do they call that? Uh, oh, steampunk, steampunk, which I'm already getting a little tired of, but I don't care what you can make in the clockwork. Just get away from me with those goggles. <laughs> 
You know what? You can dress steampunk, just don't wear the monocle and the top hat. That's all I'm saying. Just don't I do hate, it. I hate that part. <laughs> I, really, I don't know. It just makes the rest of it's fine. That just makes. Look, me if you want to wear a bow tie, just wear a goddamn bow tie. You don't have to do the whole setup. Just hey, to... bow ties are cool. I know. So don't <laughs> add hats and goggles and fucking clockwork guns to the anyway. Anyway, this was uh, based, of course, on a manga. Uh, it has been. Uh, it was reduxed into a 2.0 where they replaced some of the animation sequences with new CGI at some point. This is not that. This is the original theatrical animated version, which was one of the first films to incorporate some CG into it. I think the only other ones before this were by the same uh, director, Mamoru Oshii, uh, who I, I forget the name of the films before this, but he was one of the first guys to really start incorporating it into animation. Uh, the idea being here is, uh, and I'm, you know, you could probably describe this plot for 30 minutes because it's so complicated. Right. But there's this female cyborg um, who is has who has a the ability to basically cloak herself to like to bond with her environment. You know where you know the way real invisibility works now. The way the military is developing real stuff where it mirrors your environment and re-reflects it back. But she can only do it when she's naked because it is anime after all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's yeah. got to take her clothes off. <laughs> at um, and she works for this team that the, the public security station who have to capture this hacker known as the Puppet Master, and she and her uh, teammates, one of which is this big dude with like cyborg eyes and a couple other attachments because most people have some cyborg parts to some yeah. level. She's one of the few who've got a human brain but all, pretty much all cyborg. Yeah. Even though she's totally hot. She, she's <laughs> very attractive for an animated character. Yes. Uh, they're, they're going through various things trying to catch this guy and ultimately it comes down to like a lot of cyberpunk this deeply philosophical ideas about the singular uh, about the singularity about right. the fusing of like and the next level of AI and intellect and things like that. And it is interesting. The story is very interesting. And there's some really good action. My favorite things about this movie are the hand dra- the hand drawn backgrounds, which oh, are absolutely. gorgeous. Gorgeous artwork. Absolutely gorgeous. But that being said, this is not a film you can do something else casually, like check your email messages while you're watching it. No, you I have to be exclusively focused because the the plot is developed in terms of like things you, that you might need to pause it to check Wikipedia to see what the fuck they're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, really high level stuff that I admit there were a couple times I had to rewind it, even after having watched it years ago, rewatching it, going, wait, what the fuck are they talking about? Yeah, that's the thing. It's like I, I paid really close attention, but I still like <laughs> one of the things that bugs me with a lot of anime is characters who just talk in exposition where characters like spend 30 minutes just say and the history of this and then once you remember when we had this crystal but then that before that the the prime minister had it and it was in his office and it's like oh my god just have a conversation with people stop doing extended exposition every time you're on screen and that drove me crazy and the other thing that i just couldn't and i know this is completely unfair because this came out first but i couldn't stop thinking about the matrix every every like with every scene i was like oh yeah that I couldn't figure out if the Wachowskis stole from this or if this and The Matrix are borrowing from the same manga. Well, it's interesting. There's a booklet that comes with this edition. Of the, I believe it's like 20th uh, anniversary or something like that. Yes. Yeah, 25th anniversary. 25th. There's a booklet that comes with this that at the very end of it, they're talking with the director who's like, you know what? I'm sick of fucking getting asked. It's like <laughs> how I feel about the comparisons with The Matrix. And you know what? I bet you the fucking Wachowskis are sick of getting asked that too. Well, fuck you. <laughs> I just watched this movie. So you're getting another question, director. What's up with The Matrix? Take 
taking your movie and doing other stuff with it. You know, for a 25th anniversary, though, there's really nothing extra here except the booklet. I mean, sure, it's nice to get, like, the version that's not the 2.0, the original theatrical edition on Blu-ray, and it's the best looking of them all, but... There's no bonus features of any kind. No bow. You know, and as well, at the, you know, one thing I would hope for at this point, because when they were originally doing this stuff, the dubs weren't always very good. Uh, like nowadays, if it's a really high profile Asian anime, they'll get like big name Hollywood actors to step in and do a, a good job on them. All those Miyazaki films they've done, they're the only films like that. You, you watch them with dub, you're like, this is good this way. I don't mind this. Uh, See, here's what you do. Put on the the Amer- the English dub and then put on the subtitles and see how close together they are. They're not at all. In this, they're not even close. I mean, this is what it sounds like when dubs lie. <laughs> I see what you did. Hey, hey, hey. You're the prince of puns. Right. Um, and that's the thing is, like, the Japanese version is a lot less – the subtitles is a lot less forgiving of not understanding what the fuck is going on. And the dub version is just – terrible acting it's dumbed down yes <laughs> but so which maybe that's what i should have watched <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's easier to understand watch. but it's <laughs> it's just the worst it's very typical of this period in time dubbing i'm like if you're going to spend money on anything that's what you should have done it's got a different group of actors in here to redub this thing because no one is looking back with fond nostalgia on the quality of the dub of this film or that's if they true. are they're wrong <laughs> <laughs> they're just plain wrong <laughs> i i do think this is a beautifully made film and it was certainly groundbreaking as hell at the time it's kind of dated now um you know there have been other films that deal with these subjects i feel like as it's gone on that like more that were better at storytelling than ghost in the shell was quite frankly this is a story about ideas but not really about the story so yeah yeah you know what i think that may have been my biggest problem with it is that it was more focused on uh which again goes back to it a problem i have overall with anime is it's like this, this beautiful artwork and these grand, very philosophical ideas, but can you just give me a fucking plot already? Like, I just want a plot. Then you should watch Ninja Scroll. All right, Ninja Scroll yeah, it is. That's, there's no big ideas in there. It's just killing and lots of it. <laughs> I, I mean, if you want it, like, that's the thing, is if you want to attach the philosophical, philosophical ideas to your story, awesome. If you want it to supersede story, I'm out. Fair I think enough. that's what it boils down to with me in anime. Fair enough. Well, moving on from Ghost in the Shell, probably my most surprising uh, viewing experience this week was Batman the Brave and the Bold Season 2. Um, I had been, I think you and Martin maybe have been talking about this show. I don't know if it was favorable or, or well, just... We were arguing about this when the show first came out because this was the first return to, in the Batman animated universe, and Batman universe in general, that the first return to the sillier Batman, the Batman of the of the 60s, where it was not taken terribly seriously, where it was like all done with a wink and a nod, like, come on, it's comics type of feel. And there's a lot of worthwhile stuff that was done back when with Batman as that type of character. You can just look at some of the hysterical covers from the past, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, my parents are dead! <laughs> <laughs> and I was really kind of angry at first that they were doing this, though. I was like, I like like the darker, serious Batman. I like the fact that we're getting to the point where people are taking comic book heroes seriously. This is more directed at kids or people who are nostalgic for that period. And, I mean, you've even got, like, for of all people to do the voice, it's... Uh, Dietrich Bader. Dietrich Bader. I'm like, really? Dietrich Bader? The neighbor from Batman? Office Space. <laughs> and from uh, uh, the Drew Carey Show. Drew Carey Show, yeah. Also, the neighbor from the Drew the Carey Drew, Show. That's what he does. He's the neighbor. Uh, but that being said... 
this is ends up being once you get past that, this is a really fun show. That's the thing. Okay, that I, I'm glad to hear you say that because my resistance to this show was. The 60s thing I wasn't so much resistant to because I grew up with that show in reruns and I loved it no matter – you know, it was ridiculous. Well, I mean, I, but I, I mean, loved the it. comic books as well. They yeah. were really silly at one point. But the thing is, underneath all the silliness, subject matter-wise, there's a lot of really heavy stuff going on in this. And especially in season two, you have all these situations where I would sit there and I'd be watching it and I'd be going – what kid is going to enjoy this? Like, they're going to enjoy all the silly stuff that happens on top of it, but what kid is going to break through that to the, like, there's an, okay, let's see if I can find a good example here. There's an episode where Booster Gold and Batman go back in time so that they can say goodbye to the original Blue Beetle before he inevitably dies. Hmm. And it's just, like, really sort of bittersweet, and it's moving, and I'm like, this is... I was not expecting that at all. And it's worth mentioning as well that it's kind of weird this is even called Batman instead of the Justice League. That's true. There is – I think there's like what? Like two episodes in here where it's Batman and Robin. It's like the rest of it is like Batman and the Spectre and Batman and Superman and Batman and Green Lantern and Batman like eight other superhero characters. You know, it's – much more about the DC universe than it is just Batman stories. Yeah, and it's like the the thing about Batman Brave and the Bold is that it's a show that is wildly exploratory with DC's canon. Yeah. Like they bring up characters that I had to go, okay, I don't know who the fuck that is. And yeah. I grew like Batman was the char- the only character I read as a kid and I so I recognized a lot of the characters, but then it was like why is Batman sharing a tank with Confederate General Jeb Stewart. So I had to go look up what the fuck haunted tank was. Yeah. And the thing is, they have all these openings that are just like these little throwaway stories most of the time. But then every once in a while, the the throwaway story that's not connected to the rest of the episode will come back to be the beginning of a completely different story in a different episode. So it's like, now they're expecting kids to pay attention to this really bizarre continuity, which is interesting to me. And then there's an episode where Batmite, who is one of the worst fucking characters ever created. I'm sorry, yeah, I hate He was Batmite. from that absurd period I was talking about yes, in the comics. Yes, I yeah. hate fucking Batmite so much. And yet they get Paul Rubens to voice him, which is fun. And then he give, he accidentally gives Joker his power. Joker spends the rest of the episode murdering Batman and then bringing him back to life just so he can murder him again. So we watch Batman die like 15 times in a single episode and like with acid, with sharks, with guillotine. I'm like, this is supposed to be for kids. What the fuck is going on? Interesting note about Batmite in the proper continuity, as it were. Grant Morrison wrote this very controversial run called Batman R.I.P., where it was explained, basically, if I can remember this right, how Martin explained it hysterically on a Leog episode, uh, that the entirety of the Silly 60s stuff was because he was addicted to this, like, force addicted by a criminal to this hallucinatory drug that made him dream all of that. And Batmite comes, you know, as he's redosed with this drug as a sort of spirit guide. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, That's he was awesome. never real. I would buy that. I would buy that in a <laughs> it's, heartbeat. It's, I thought it was awful, but it's funny <laughs> that, like, Grant Morris, I was like, I gotta hand it to you, Grant, for trying to incorporate all that stuff into the continuity, but really, maybe we should all just pretend it never happened. Right. <laughs> and then there's there's some really interesting stuff they do that is a nod to people who have been fans of animated Batman for years. Yeah. There's a great episode called Chill of the Night, and in this episode, uh, let me see if I can remember their names, I think it's uh, the Phantom Stranger and that's Vengeance? A, that, that's a character, the Phantom Stranger. So the Phantom Stranger and Vengeance, I believe, is the other character. Um, 
basically make a bet. Oh, Spectre. Spectre, Spectre, I'm sorry. So it's Phantom Stranger and Spectre, and they make a bet basically for the soul of Batman, Hmm. where they're like, we're going to let Bruce Wayne meet Joe Chill, find out Joe Chill's the guy that killed his parents, and then basically let him confront him. And if he kills him, Spectre's like, then Batman forevermore will just be a murderous wraith. And if he doesn't kill him, then we'll leave him alone. And in that episode, Spectre is voiced by Mark Hamill, and Phantom Stranger is voiced by Kevin Conroy. You know, it's funny because, like, in the context of the comics, that is absolutely not what either one of those characters would do. Probably not. <laughs> but as I have no, like, familiarity whatsoever with either one of them, yeah. it was just, like, this interesting Faust-type thing going on. And, and Adam the- West is Thomas Wayne. Tom- he shows up in a couple of episodes as Julie Thomas Newmar Wayne. Julie Newmar is Matt- Martha Wayne, which you're like, okay... Talk about making a nod to, you know, where your inspiration is coming from. Definitely. The original Batman TV series. Yeah, it's hard to beat that. And then there's a great episode where Batman goes to another planet and they have their own version of Batman, (laughs) who is voiced by Kevin Conroy. Space Batman! Yeah, pretty much. And he's voiced by Kevin Conroy. And it's so amazing because on that planet, Batman has Superman's powers. So, like, Space Batman starts getting jealous of our Batman because he can do all the Superman stuff. So it's really kind of funny. That's bizarre. Yeah, so it's like... All of this stuff is going on where it's like you have like darker subject matter that's disguised by all these really silly trappings. You have deep, deep track knowledge of the entire DC canon and you have like references and, and reverence for the, the history of Batman on TV in general. And it's like that's such a weird mixture of things. But overall, I was I was kind of digging it. It's its own separate thing. You can't tie it into no. the, any other content no, 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 no. at all. It is goofy. It's always got a wink and a nod at the audience, but ultimately, it really is a lot of fun. Yeah, um, and I do like the artwork. I mean, like I said, I to me, coming off of having just watched the original Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, which to me is still the greatest superhero animated series ever made. You know that and the original Batman the animated series, Absolutely. which take it very seriously. Like have a regular continuity. Coming off that to this. I had a lot of resistance. I was like, oh, yeah. why aren't you just making more stuff in that universe? I still don't know why they don't go back to that universe and, and go like, let's do new shows like that. Like Young Justice was, which very much felt like, okay, this is in direct continuity with that previous stuff. This is, while it's directed at little kids, adults can still enjoy it once they get past those biases. Very much. It's absurd, but it's fun. Yeah, you really have to... Throw your expectations out the window because this is a completely different uh, animated show from any other Batman animated show you've ever seen. Very true. Well, that was Brave and the Bold Season 2, and from there we're going to move on to the 100 Season 100? The 100. The 100 Season 1. No, just one. Just one. Season 1. It'd be impressive if you got 100 seasons. Well, you know, the CW... (laughs) And I'm out. (laughs) ...is getting pretty known for... Doing genre shows. That's true. And some of them they do pretty well. I mean, Supernatural can't, you know, I you I won't shut up about it. I love it so much. I just started watching that, by the way. Did you really? Yep, I just uh, started watching You want to borrow my complete collection on Blu-ray? I will. I, you know what? When I get to the point where Netflix no longer has them, I'll start borrowing them from oh, you. Oh, fair enough. Well, the quality <laughs> is much better on Blu-ray. Oh, I'm sure way. it is. <laughs> but I can push a button and make it appear on my TV. Plus, the gag reels are great. Oh, that's true. I would like to see that. See, the one thing that make you get into Supernatural is the fact that it's filled with great, like, 70s, like, heavy rock songs. Yep, that's know? true. Talk about your carry on my wayward son. Absolutely. You know? It's like awesome mixed volume 10 seasons. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the 100 is not looking to shape up to be one of the better CW series, but 
that's not to say there's not some stuff here that's worthwhile. The biggest problem is that this is a show that starts its mythology and immediately ignores its own rules. Oh, no! Immediately. I hate that. Uh, this is sci-fi post-apocalyptic. All right, so look, when I first heard about this, I was like, this is the most CW thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> Whoever came up with this idea must have gotten paid a shit ton of money. Like, by them, it's like, oh my god, this is what we've been waiting for. Based on a young adult series that wasn't even done being, the first book wasn't even done being written when they started producing the show. Oh god. Uh, the idea is, is that there was nuclear war on Earth, it's been, it's uninhabitable because of it, and the various countries' space stations that were floating in space found a way to sort of connect to each other and form one giant space station where all these people could live that was a hundred years ago uh and they as far as they know have to wait another hundred years to go to earth before it would be habitable also bullshit it would take considerably considerably longer than that after a widespread nuclear war like we're talking ten thousand years probably right um but all these people on the ship they're like they have a very strict set of rules because, like, any infraction is the death penalty. I mean, obviously, overpopulation becomes a problem pretty quick when you have super, super limited resources. Oh, yeah, also a problem. Where <laughs> would you regenerate resources for? How would a, all those stations together have 100 years worth of oxygen? Because or food, or CW. Just, just, just saying. Okay, but forget about all that. There's a juvie detention center because they're not going to execute somebody who's under 18. So this big juvie detention center that has a hundred juvenile delinquents in it. And the president of this society world decides that they are going to send these kids down to planet Earth because there's at least suspicion that it's plausible it might be livable now. Huh. Um, yeah, not really sure how that would happen. <laughs> in, in fact, it wouldn't, to be clear. <laughs> but so they kind of force these kids down there to the earth with little trackers on their arm that, that, that uh, you know, watch what their health and everything is to know if they're still okay. And the reason for all this is because secretly the space station is is going to run out of its resources. They're not telling people this. We are all going to die unless we find a way off this thing. It is the only answer. And so, you know, basically these hundred kids, this is their punishment. They get to go down there and do that. Of course, they get off there. Everything's fine. And it is never mentioned again, the nuclear radiation. (laughs) Never even comes up. Like, well, it goes away in, like, what, 12 hours? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, like at worst, it comes up, like, in the sense that, like, oh, well, now there are some mutated species, and there's, um, yeah, like, you'll see, like, some people have horses that have, like, two heads, and you're like, really? That's, yeah, but, but even worse, there are humans who stayed on the planet, who've now evolved into these nomadic, warlike tribes, who are fine. They're fine. <laughs> They're just barbarous. I mean, if there were still if there were still humans on the planet, why would they have evolved into barbarous species like that in the first place? Oh, I don't even because what about all the stuff that was still there? CW. Yeah, because CW. <laughs> and uh, not to mention because CW, all these people just ends up in a who's having sex with who. Oh who yes, is, like secretly in love with who, and really like, important in a post-apocalyptic society. Uh, you know, and uh, the the competition between the main character Clark Griffin, played by Eliza Taylor, who I found to be surprisingly charismatic less <laughs> like is so serious all the time which they actually wrote into her character she's incapable of having fun she's always serious which is good because i don't think she can do anything else bereft of charisma <laughs> um 
whose mother, which the idea was she was in prison because her father was a scientist who was trying to tell people that everything is going to end. And the, basically the government executed him for it. And her old boyfriend, who's the son of the current president of the space station, uh, snuck onto the space shuttle to be with her. And he's, he's the one who it appears told the, the galactic council or whatever the fuck it is that, <laughs> that dad <laughs> doing this thing. And so she's mad at him and She's count as an accessory to the crimes of her father, which is why she's on there. And then there's this other guy, Bellamy, who's like the big handsome dude, played by Bob Morley, who is wants to Lord of the Flies this bitch. He's down there and he's like, <laughs> whatever, let's party anarchy. But then slowly it turns into a thing of like, you know, the two of them sort of like fusing their viewpoints and starting to respect each other and learning how to lead this group of people. And that's with turning out that not only are there uh, all these warlike tribes who are fucking with them, not only are there this toxic winds that blow through every once in a while, which I guess is their nod to the nuclear thing, but that's not really how it would work. Mm. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. no. Uh, and not only are some of these characters who are down, I mean, they were all juvenile delinquents, which means some of them are extremely broken. There's like one character who is like, who does nothing but be evil and for no apparent reason. <laughs> you know, you're like, why? What is wrong with you? Who would do that? <laughs> uh, you, you've got all that and they've still got to figure out who loves each other. So, you know. Well, that's very that's important. Key. It's just, it's not totally awful. There's much worse stuff than this on the CW and other channels. And there are some interesting things that happen in the plot as it goes along, like little developments, but none of which are terribly like, wait, why would that even... Okay, never mind. The very least fun to watch. I'll say that it has a cool cliffhanger. It, you know, it, it it's like one of those, they, something that's brought up early, early on, and then is completely ignored until, oh shit, I forgot, that was a thing. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that, that, that is a thing. And now it's going to lead to, like, a, sounds like a very different type of second season. That's good. It needs a very different type of second season. <laughs> uh, I just had, I mean, I watched the whole thing, but I can't say I was crazy about it, <laughs> as I think I've made very clear in this review. Yeah. Um, yeah, a bunch of good-looking young teens oh my God. trapped on the earth, oh. learning how to fend stop. for themselves. Like just I said, it's stop. the very soul of a CW television show. Which is funny from a network that doesn't seem to have a lot of that soul yeah. thing you mentioned. Oh, boy. Well, you know, you get what you get, and um, some shows get better as they go along. Like Arrow, for instance, which I thought had an extremely by-the-book CW show first season for most of it, has a knock-it-out-of-the-park second season. So, so we'll wait for second season of this and see if it gets any better. <sighs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot. These guys like the Aliens movies a lot because they quote them constantly. And <laughs> I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I came back in and now I'm out. I yeah, never came back. Like no, repeatedly kidding. in scenes, <laughs> their characters in the background are shouting and quoting Hicks from Aliens. That's enough. Yeah. No. No, we'll wait for the 200 and see if it gets better. <laughs> Anyway, moving along through our, I, you know what, I'm just going to call this section uh, Exchanging Channels, because now we're going to talk about a show that I actually really enjoy, uh, that for some reason just hit DVD or Blu-ray, like, I, it's, it seems like it should have been out already, but Brooklyn Nine-Nine Season 1, and I must make a public apology before we begin this, 
I apologize to Andy Samberg because when we did our Golden Globes commentary long ago and far away, I was like, I'm sorry, did they just give Best Actor in a Comedy Series to Andy Samberg? Are you fucking kidding me? And then I watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine and I'm like, oh, no, he's actually fucking great on that show. See, I, this is where we're going to differ, though, where as much as I like Brooklyn Nine-Nine a lot... I feel like he's the weak link in this whole thing. It is definitely an ensemble show, and the, the character that makes me laugh the most is absolutely Terry Crews. Oh, yeah. Terry Crews and uh, what's the uh, the female actress who's like the snarky comedian? Oh, Chelsea Peretti. Chelsea P- Peretti. Yeah, yeah. really funny. In fact, the whole supporting cast in this is great. Andy Samberg has got this terrific script to work with, like snappy, funny, tight, well-written show, well-directed show, and... He's playing it on such an obnoxious level as this childish detective that I just want to punch him in the <laughs> face most of the time. I don't have that issue with him, uh, but I will say that I agree that the the show is really tightly written and the comedy really does allow for um, for the entire ensemble to shine. And it's not Andy Samberg's show, sure. which is really interesting because you would expect with something like that that that's exactly how they would sell it. But instead... They have have crafted these situations where everybody, in their own way, with their own quirks and their own hangups and their own weirdness, like everybody in this in this precinct is out of their fucking mind yeah, in got, one way or another. Yeah, Andy Samberg is this detective who is like very good detective, but he's so childish. He's always playing pranks on people, class clown type character, and he tends to drive everyone else crazy. Yeah, uh, you got Stephanie Beatrice as uh, Detective Rosa Diaz, who is like. Uh, Hardcore punk cop. Yeah, she's like the one who's like, she's very good at it, but she's like, take no shit. You know, very, doesn't smile. Does, never smiles. You've got Terry Crews as Detective Sergeant Terry Jeffords, who is, you know, also all the cops in here, except for maybe one, are very good at what they do. Except for They're Hitchcock just, and, and uh, yeah. what's the other guy? Scully. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Terry's like, He's just gotten promoted, so he's kind of the guy leading like the the, the detective meetings and stuff, and he's very not quite uh, completely comfortable with it. He is exactly the character he plays in the Old Spice commercials. Yes, he is. He's like always working out. He's very intense, and yet he's like you want to give him a hug. But he's very <laughs> high strung. Um, he has a family that he's very attached to, and one of the plot threads in this season is that he had a situation where he shot when he shouldn't have and now he's very uncomfortable with guns yeah so there's this whole bringing out this feminine quality in his character which is of course played for laughs sure uh you've got melissa Fumero as amy santiago who's the gonna be somebody's love interest clearly who's like a i i really 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 want to be the best at this job if, there if is. andy sandberg is the class clown she's the teacher's pet like it yeah. really is kind of structured almost like a high school uh, comedy, except that they all happen to be grown-up cops. And Andy Samberg's pet is Joe Latruglio, Tru, uh, Truglio, who is not, maybe not a great cop, but he certainly tries. He's, he's playing yeah. very the type of characters he usually plays. He's very nervous. He's very uh, uncomfortable in his own skin. He's a dork. Yeah, and everybody makes fun of him. Uh, Chelsea Peretti is an administrator there, who is the assistant captain, the the, the captain, and she's kind of like. She's in it for herself. She's a borderline sociopath. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and, and is not afraid to throw anyone under the bus. Andrew and, Andre Brower, who is like one of the great actors on television, yeah. like in Homicide Life of the Streets, who's so amazing. Here he's playing this completely always serious police captain who kind of like can't believe he's even got to deal with these people who 
despite his absolute strength of character and personality and competence, turns out to be gay, yeah. which is something that no one else knows how to deal with. Yeah. Like they're all like, what do we, we can't make fun of him. Because he's the, he he's the opposite of a stereotypical gay TV character. He's just very stoic. He doesn't show his emotions ever. And, yeah. and whenever like, he does talk about anything emotional, he does it so stoically. It's funny in and of itself. Yes. Uh, and, you know, there's a bunch of smaller characters other than that. You've got a lot of reoccurring people like Patton Oswalt in here as, like, the fire the, chief. The fire chief who's always, like, you know, battling with the police group over whatever. Yeah. Uh, Mary Lou Henner. Mary Lou Henner uh, shows up as this uh, this character who ends up being uh, sort of a love interest for Joe Latrulio's character, which is, you know, the, the awkwardness of those two being together sort of mirrors the overall awkwardness of Joe Latrulio's character, who, as we mentioned before, He's a very earnest guy, always trying his best, but just can't stop screwing up. Not just at his job, but just kind of in life. Uh, he kind of needs an Andy Samberg character to be like, dude, don't do not do that. That That's a terrible idea. you got Fred Armisen, Kyra Sedgwick, lots of lots of people on there, lots of guest stars. Andy Richter, Stacey Keach, Craig Robinson. I mean, like, it is Adam Sandler playing himself. <laughs> that was actually, that episode is fucking hilarious. This is a show Because they're just mocking Adam Sandler. This is a show that feels like it should not be this funny. I, I mean, agree with that. I, it it was a little rough start for me because it's got so many things like that feel like oh well this is obviously how you write a sitcom and yet the strength of the performances of these characters and their chemistry together really elevates it above to being just so snappy, witty, funny that uh, there's a reason this thing, you know, took a lot of Emmys. Yeah. No, I I I think it's I think it's one of the better new comedies on TV and like I said I, it seems like it's dragging its feet a little bit in terms of like, because has the second season started yet uh, on no, TV? I don't, think, I don't think so. And it's like we're just now getting the the release of the first season. I, I don't they know. They usually try and put out the seasons like regardless when the second season comes out, like a couple weeks before the second season comes out. So you get get that. Oh, I'll pick that up, watch it through, and then I'm really excited to watch the second season. I don't know why uh, it feels like it's been longer. All, and strangely, like shows like this usually have a lot of bonus features. This one just has deleted scenes, like about 26 minutes of them. Uh, so. You know, That's strange. You'd yeah. think with a, with a comedy a ensemble like this, there'd something? be a gag reel for sure. Yeah, but... nothing like that. But, huh. hey, this is well worth owning just because it is one of the funniest shows that came on television last year. Faux show. Moving on, we're going to talk about Grimm Season 3, and you can color me completely off this bandwagon a long time <laughs> ago. So, what's going on in the Grimm world, Chris? You know, it's funny. I was talking to my girlfriend about this the other day, and, like, the shows we liked when we were really, really young like really young that were like our favorite things. If you really look closely at what they were about, what the, you know, the core of them, you can see the ways that they actually affected who the person that you became later on. Like I like to look back at Scooby-Doo, which was my favorite show forever where, and this is the original Scooby-Doo, none of that Scrappy-Doo or Scooby-Dumb shit. This is like, okay. like the, the core original episodes where there was no such thing as monsters and ghosts. Ever. Right. They were always the guy who ran the haunted amusement park. I was trying to figure out why you keep trying to pull masks off everybody all the time. <laughs> well, I mean, look at me. I'm a huge skeptic. Mm. You know? I mean, this could not... I mean, there's no way that those things aren't connected. Jinkies. Yeah. We just had a breakthrough, folks. <laughs> the other way they're connected is that, God damn it, I will watch almost any Monster Hunter show that comes on TV, no matter how <laughs> mediocre it is. <laughs> I really will. I mean, there's a reason why Buffy the Vampire Slayer was such a huge, huge thing to me, you know, because it was one of those shows done really, really well, as well as The X-Files. Done really well until a certain point when it wasn't. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Grimm is a show that needs a different showrunner. Because there's a lot of good stuff going on here, but 
boy, do these people not know how to tell a season arc. They just don't. And season three, even though in some ways the show is improving, in terms of season arc, is the worst yet. Uh, the idea here is David Gintoli plays Nick Burkhart, who is this guy who finds out he is the latest in a basically a race of people called Grimms, who have the ability to see these creatures called Vessen for what they really are. Now imagine, like, everywhere around us, people who look like people are actually, like, mythological creatures. There's like rat people and hippo people and cat people and dog people and whatever who kind of look like a, like a, like, you know, aware or whatever when they get nervous or uncomfortable or scared, they do what a thing called Vogue. (laughs) Funny enough. They Vogue? (laughs) Vogue. Yeah. Like they strike a pose. It's called W O G E, but it's German. So everything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you can, and, and you know, he can see them for what they are. The problem is they can see him too. It's revealed finally in the season. Cause like, there's a point where uh, his buddy asks him, so how do they know you're Grimm? He's like, Oh shit. You know what? I don't know. <laughs> and it's revealed that apparently when you look into the eyes of a Grimm, they look like endless, infinite darkness, like soul sucking darkness. You're like, Oh, well, I guess that would be a, a tip off. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Red flag. Uh, but no, the Grimm's throughout history have been guys who are take no shit. Don't really make alliances, kill every single Vessin that comes their way. But this is the modern age. Vessin have regular jobs. They're not all going around killing people. You know, most of them aren't They're just want to live their fucking lives. The problem is when they see a Grimm, their first instinct is to attack and kill it because of the history of it. Sure. Nick ain't that kind of guy. And he's also a police officer. So he wants to figure out a way to balance these two things. He helps doing this with a buddy of him named Monroe, who is basically the, the, a wolf man of, of the, uh, of the Vesson, uh, played really well. Best character on the whole show by Silas Weir Mitchell, and various other characters as the show goes along. As it turns out, you know, it, it, it always keeps going where there's, a, oh, another character turned out to be a Vessin. Oh, they're a Vessin too. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully we've gotten to the show where the point in the show, which was really awkward and like, God, will you fucking just get over this early on where pretty much all the people in his life now know he's a Grimm and know what Wesson are. So there's no more of those. Let's dodge around this. There's like one character left on the whole cast who doesn't know that <laughs> what's going on. And I feel so bad for him. This season even has a whole thing where he finally sees one of Essen full out, which is one of the scariest, nastiest looking ones. And like, there's an arc in the middle of the season where he's just having nightmares and has to go in this, into the insane asylum for a while Jesus. and comes out of it. Like, Nope, I was just, uh, I was obviously stressed. <laughs> That's what caused it. It was stress. <laughs> it could happen. It could happen. <laughs> but oh my this, God. you know, is so typical of the show that it'll set up arcs and then completely abandon them. There's really boring stuff going on with some of these characters, especially Nick's uh, girlfriend, living girly and girlfriend, Juliet, played by Bitsy Tullock, who is so uninteresting and sh- so shrill and harpy at points. Uh, like, oh my God, this, the decision she makes, why are you jealous all the time? I do not get it. <laughs> like anything. And she goes off and like, ah, I'm, I'm out of here. You're just <laughs> boring. Stop it. This, you know, the whole thing, the last season built up to with like having a, a, a Vesson who was basically like a voodoo God type character, who was a puffer fish who could spit venom on people. Nice. He spits venom on the Grimm and he turns into sort of like super Grimm, but with no, 
actual like sense of like who anybody is. He's just going to kill anybody who gets near him. So the first two episodes deals with that, and then it's never it's mentioned briefly here and there. Like people go, Nick, are you all right? You looked really intense there for a minute, but that's it. It never really comes up again. <laughs> it's like really because I feel like he like like says after you know I feel different. I feel like I'm stronger or better somehow. But really. Do you? I couldn't tell. <laughs> Does that have anything to do with anything? There's also this whole running story where, like, now, like, there's a kingdom in Prague, I think it is, of, like, like the, the prince of all the Vesen played, uh, who was a villain in the second season, but is now dead. So now his brother, I think it was his brother, brother, cousin, whatever, who gives a fuck, played by Alexis Denisov from Angel is trying to figure out who killed him as well as everybody's trying to figure out who the next uh, king is going to be. And this one of the most boring characters on this entire show, Adeland, who was a basically a witch, uh, Vesson, uh, I think they call him Hexen Beasts, uh, played by Claire Coffey, is brought back forcibly into this whole thing because now she's pregnant and it's not clear if it's the baby of the the old prince or if it's the baby of the police captain of uh of nick who is also a cousin or something to the royal family either way <laughs> it's a royal blood and there's all these people trying to get the baby in boring nothing is more boring than characters chasing after a fucking baby what are you doing <laughs> i don't give a fuck the baby can't even baby. run very fast <laughs> there's also this weird thing that they do this season where every time there's a new vessin like the two char- vessin friend characters in here uh, uh monroe and his girlfriend rosalie like nick brings them stuff have you ever heard of this and they're like it couldn't be. I thought it was a myth, but it has to be. Oh my god, stop having this conversation. It's stop. always what you think it is. Stop that vesting around. <laughs> oh, nice. Stop <laughs> doing that. I mean, which I do appreciate they're actually doing more of things that have more specific mythological basis. Like, you get um, uh, uh, the Krampus is a vesting in this episode. So your Christmas episode is the Krampus going around taking kids and putting them in sacks. I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. And it would have been a cool standalone episode if it wasn't half- Oh, the episode wasn't filled with the boring ass chase the baby plot line that was chase going on the in the baby. background. That that honestly, Nick and the rest of the characters aren't even involved in for most of it. <laughs> it's like it taking place on the other side of the world. Who gives a shit? And oh, did I mention it comes to nothing? It just completely kind of peters out. Right. The one really interesting thing this season does, aside from some good standalone episodes that would be better if they didn't have all that the, the running mythology fusing through them, is that they introduce another Grimm in this in this season. He finds this girl who's like 18, 19 years old who doesn't know she's a Grimm and she's just kind of this badass Pat Benatar looking chick who has been killing these things, you know, mainly because every time one of them sees her, it's like, ah, Grimm, and try and kill her. So she's like, well, fuck, I'm going to kill you. And they sort of, he's like, you know, well, I'm training a new Grimm. And that actually gets to be fun, but it leads to a kind of a really predictable final episode. You're like, come on, y'all didn't see that coming from a million miles away. Oh, ending in a wedding episode, too? Like, really, please, don't don't end your seasons with a wedding Look, episode. I have to be honest, I, I like fell asleep halfway through your description of this, of this season. It's <laughs> not getting any better. I still think it's for the guys who want to watch the monster. And this is an enormously popular show. It's a huge hit for whatever reason, even though there are much better shows than this out there. It's okay at its, at, at its best, and it's pretty dull at its worst. This is, of course, filled with deleted scenes, a pretty funny gag reel. Um, uh, there's a series of like web featurettes, digital s- series with some of the minor characters that are kind of funny. And then here and there, little featurettes. But overall... 
man, just get a new showrunner because there's enough elements to make a really good show here. It's just this isn't that show. I got you. Well, moving on from our TV talk, we're going to get back to the movies with Firestorm. Firestorm. Which is a Hong Kong giant action film. That's for damn sure. Did you get to see this one? I did, yeah, and I, you're right, man. They are not fucking around with their action sequences in this movie, uh, which is basically about a, a group of... It's kind of like Chinese heat. Like, it's it's about a group of robbers knocking over a... Uh, an armored car, and then kind of the the aftermath of that as this obsessive cop is is going after them and trying to figure out who they are. And then into that mix, you have a guy who's recently paroled and is trying to go straight, but is that really the case? And, you know, it's it's got a lot of the sort of uh, traditional crime film elements that you would see in something from, like, Michael Mann, except that it's a Hong Kong movie, so there's, like, insane stunts on top of all of that. You know, the thing about this film is that, like, well, you're right, like, a lot of those traditional things in here... They're here. They're shoved in almost uncomfortably into the plot. Yeah. Um, and they're not that well done either. And there's there's a couple of things that happen just so that, like, the audience feels, like, emotionally invested that's, like, so over the top. It's just like, really, guys? <laughs> Did you... I, I won't say it. I mean, but. at the best, you've got the great Andy Lau as the scene, the the police inspector who's always nice to see him, who's the by-the-book guy who finds himself in a situation where to do the right thing, he has to do the wrong thing, which right. has never been countered before. And that is kind of an interesting aspect of the story. But a lot of the other stuff on the side is like yawn. Fortunately, every 10 minutes or so, something gets blown the fuck up. These criminals don't seem to have a problem with nuking half the city to get the cops off their Oh my backs. God. The final giant action scene is like Transformers movie size. Yeah. It's just, holy fuck. How much shit did you blow up to do this? Yeah. And then my favorite action sequence is two guys are are fighting and they on a roof and they bust through a fence and then the fence falls between the buildings and then the it like gets caught between the buildings saving their lives and instead of scrambling to save themselves they just keep fighting just keep fighting and it's like you're in such a precarious position would you stop trying to knock each other out just keep fighting just keep fighting <laughs> <laughs> they uh, just keep at it uh, Gordon Lamb plays the ex-con also another good actor uh, who is. Want, they he keeps saying, I want to leave my criminal past behind for his girlfriend, but he's the truth is he's working with the bad guys. And eventually, of course, it, they're trying to get that whole the killer See, aspect and it's his in sister. there. That's the other weird thing. What, that, it's what? his sister. It's not his girlfriend. Oh, I but thought it was his girlfriend. Because it's so weird the way they play up their relationship. It's like, are you guys sleeping together? What is going <laughs> But they clearly state that she's his sister, but it's like their whole relationship is just like – it's a little creepy how how close they are. Well, I guess. You know, Wikipedia says girlfriend, so maybe it was a mistranslation or something like that. Maybe, but she, yeah, like it's it's definitely his sister. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wish that the storyline stuff here was better because the action is top notch. It I mean, really is. Like the the final you you mentioned Heat, that big final action scene is going to remind you of Heat. Yeah. The big shootout on the street with the criminals versus the cops where it's like, Jesus fuck. Just well the fucking movie starts with one of those. And, and I was like, Oh, maybe this will be the nod to Heat. And it's like, okay, now take that, amplify it by about a hundred, and that's yeah. the final action sequence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you thought that first scene was cool. Wait yeah. till you see what we're building towards. Jesus Christ. Uh as well, it's funny, like usually in like episodes with a big lot of criminals and a big lot of cops like the criminals can't hit the broad side of the barn the cops hit every shot this is the polar opposite yes. <laughs> where the cops can't hit 
anything they aim for. They can't do anything right. And the criminals are like extremely good at killing hundreds and hundreds of cops. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty insane. And, you know, it's it's fun on that level. But I want to say this. Well, go. I'm pretty sure whoever's in charge of your subtitles screwed the pooch on this because their conversations. I'm just like. That didn't make a fucking lick of sense. I don't think that's what they actually said. It's like it's like trying to use cop terminology, but then phrasing it in the wrong syntax, and you're like, right. "Wait, wh- what? What happened? What, what is that supposed to mean?" <laughs> I, I did. I think I really do think that there are some subtitle issues. So ignore that because like I mean, if you can, this is you know we talked earlier about like Ghost in the Show, which you can't do something else while you watch. This is one you can. You probably you, totally You can could. probably like just sort of halfway pay attention until things start blowing up and then pay attention because it's fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> I will say this is the <laughs> this is the one movie I have ever ever said of a movie. They're not really going to throw the little girl with learning disabilities out a window, are they? <laughs> I mean, they're re- not really going to throw the little girl with learning disabilities out a window, right? They just threw the little girl with learning disabilities out of a well, window. You know, you know the, the whole rule of like not killing children is endemic entirely and only to English-speaking countries, right? Because like it seems like we learned from Fantastic Fest, they don't give a fuck no. anywhere else. They're like, yeah, let's do this. This will create audience sympathy. I mean, is there I, a dog? Let's kill it. No, see, I don't have the same problem killing kids as I do with dogs in movies, which Kids I know had it coming, completely fucked up and weird of me. That's fine. But like, <laughs> even I was like, guys, that's a little, I don't know. Okay. You did. Yeah, I, don't nah, know. Nah. I don't, I don't think I agree with this choice. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. It's a firestorm of action this week on digital noise. Burr, 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 boom. Explosion. Boom. And we are the best. Is the next movie we're going to talk about, oh, I actually. I we were still talking about our show. No, no, no. Well, yes, but no. Uh, we Are the Best, which is, uh, is it Norwegian or Swedish? Swedish. Swedish. Okay, it's a Swedish. Swedish hyphen Danish. Swed- Swedenish. Swedenish. Uh, ooh, it, Danishes. I'm ooh, hungry. I know. Now I'm just hungry. Yeah. Uh, this is a film about uh, three young girls who are uh, kind of coming into their own identity as as punks. Yeah. So it's sort of a punk coming of age story about three little girl punks. Yeah, it's uh, 1982, so it's really the beginning of 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 like the end of first wave punk, beginning of second wave punk. Yeah, uh, when it was really kind of like it was not like now you go to any high school anywhere, there's going to be a lot of punks around. It's going to be no big deal. It was you know okay, there's some punks. Of course, there's a group of punks. Um, it's a you know punk is dead. Sorry, but. There's still a lot of punks. <laughs> this is punk has always been dead, but somehow it's always been alive too. <laughs> punk is dead, they say. Long live punk. <laughs> I'm rephrasing, but um, and these three girls who are you know prepubescent, uh, early teen girls, you know they're kind of ignored by their parents. I mean, their parents aren't terrible parents; they're just like busy with their own shit. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, at first it's just two who are like best friends, and they're made fun of by everyone else. Uh, Bobo is, you know, has, can't, can't decide what to do with her hair and she looks glasses. Kind she of also has a terrible fucking name. Yeah. Uh, Clara, you know, the other girls are like, if you would just do something other than with, with your hair, other than that mohawk, you'd be hot. And she's like, oh, fuck off. And they kind of fall into starting to play instruments and deciding to form a punk band, like just kind of just to fuck with another, a heavy metal band that uses a public space there. And, 
you know, along the way, it starts doing interesting things with their friendship. They find this other girl who goes to their school, slightly older than, than them, named Hedvig, who's like a serious Christian. So no one talks to her because they think she's weird for being like very Christian. And like, oh, but she can play the guitar really well. So let's bring her into our little band. Yeah. And it's this really unusual coming of age story that's i mean it's really not like any other with these three girls like learning about what friendship means and learning about themselves and learning about like as they're just starting to have feelings for boys and like what happens when boys get in the way of friendships and lots of little elements like that that end up we really like all three of these girls and it's you know it's it, a lot of people said oh it's a it's a punk movie i'm like it's not really a punk movie i mean that's really kind of the setting yeah. if you will it it, it it's a neat character piece about three unique little girls who don't fit in anywhere else except for each other and starting to get self-confidence by learning that that's okay. Yeah. I would say it's not a punk movie because the movie itself is not trying to break out of any molds or make any kind of bold statement. It's really just like you said, it's just a coming of age story and it's, it's similar to ones we've seen before. They just choose to view it through the lens of, of, of punk culture or at least uh, what punk culture looks like to, you know, adolescence uh but what i found interesting about it is that it almost has a documentary style to it mm. like it's so like the performances are so natural and the action it feels so unscripted that it felt like i was watching a documentary which was kind of an, an interesting angle to, I, I you know overall i thought this was a, a really cute film yeah i did too i i like the fact that even though there are very much like these girls are doing things you wouldn't see in another coming of age story like they they're fucking with the Christian girl at some level, uh, making them listen to the song called hang God. And, you know, and it, that ends up being an interesting relationship as you find out that like, look, so what if she believes in God, you know, like, is that, she's not a terrible person because of it. Yeah. Like, it's like them going past the dogma of punk into like a greater understanding of what it just is to be a regular person. Yeah. It's like, um, st- you know, it's the whole, the whole idea of like, you know, people don't, people don't accept punks because they're judgmental. So like, we can't be judgmental of somebody who believes something different than we do because then we would be as bad as, as the majority not accepting us, which I think is an interesting point. Uh, Absolutely. And there's like, you know, I mean, funny stuff like the The ending, which is a rock gig that they get to is like, is what seeing a punk show was like. I was going to say it, it it seems like the worst, uh, the worst event of their lives. Cause it's like people are booming and coming up and spitting spitting on them. But that was a punk show at that time. But there's smiles that start coming out. They're like, Holy shit. This is the most punk thing we've ever done. Actually used to call it gobbing. Like there's footage you can see of like punk bands in London where like the fans go up and spit on them. It was what you did. Thank God that stopped. (laughs) (laughs) Some, who was the gob stopper in that that equation? But yeah, this is a really sweet little film that, that is, uh, you know, a wonderful little coming-of-age story that is pretty, despite the fact that, like, yes, ultimately it is more that than it's a punk movie, it's still really different from any other coming-of-age movie I've ever seen. And I think especially, like, woman viewers are really going to identify with this as you're watching these little girls who feel they're just, they don't know who they are. Finding through their friendship and through, like, trying to understand the balance between the punk dogma and just humanity, who they really are. Going back to that Hang God line, there's some clever dialogue because immediately after she makes her listen to that, 
the girl who makes her listen to it says, well, it's actually a Christian song because you can't hang God unless you believe that he exists. And I was just like, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) It's a Christian song because they want to hang God, but obviously they have to believe he exists because you can't hang him unless he exists. An interesting (laughs) side point to that, uh, Anton LaVey, who sort of was the modern father of the Church of Satan, who penned the Satanic Bible and such, actually is an atheist. You know, like, like, I mean, in the book makes it clear if you actually read it, it's like we don't believe in God at all. He doesn't exist. These things are sort of rituals to deny all the concepts and the philosophies that come along with like the idea of believing in a kind and gentle God, because we believe the opposite true and do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. That's it. That's your only law, which to me, I go, I call bullshit on. I'm like, yes. And society, where would that be? Yes. <laughs> and civilization. So both, both Bibles are kind of fucked if you think about it. <laughs> yes. It does not work for the record. <laughs> well, moving on from We Are the Best to Once Upon a Time in America. This movie is four hours long Four now. hours and 11 minutes. Holy shit. So you may be familiar with Sergio Leone's uh, Once Upon a Time in America uh, or you may Once be familiar with Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah, which is one of my favorite films. By it's an amazing Also very movie. long. Yes. <laughs> um, very long, but very, very tremendous. Of, I love one that One of film. Henry Fonda's few roles as a villain. As a villain, yeah. yeah. And Charles Bronson in a very subtle performance, of all things. Uh, anyway, so Once Upon a Time in America was sort of Sergio Leone's attempt to make a gangster film in the vein of The Godfather. Yeah. And more specifically, I think, Godfather 2. Because it's very much a retrospective of someone's gangster life. There's no question that everyone involved with this film was l- looking at The Godfather going, we've got to find a way to do our own film on that level of epicness. Right. And I think that if anything gets in the way of that being true in this film, it's how determined they are for that to be the case. And and the thing that made me apprehensive about watching this new director's cut is that my I grew up adoring mob movies. I watched all the mob movies I could get my hand. I even watched uh, Mobsters with Patrick Dempsey and Christian Slater, which was sort of the Young Guns version oh, of how the five families were formed. I vaguely remember that. It's one. a terrible movie that I watched all the time because I was obsessed with mob movies. I watched The Godfather, Goodfellas, Casino, Mobsters, A Bronx Tale. I watched those movies over and over and over again. I loved it. I studied the mafia. I, I, I was fascinated by the culture. I could not get into this movie, even during that phase of my life, because... I thought there was too much dead air in the movie. Yeah. So when I heard, oh, this one's longer, I'm like, that doesn't sound better. Well, the biggest problem a lot of critics had when this came out, and a lot of critics panned this when it first came out at the 229-minute cut, uh, were like, the character relationships in this don't make sense. There's a lot of people who pop up and then don't go anywhere. And Sergio Leone and other people associated all we were always said, that is an abortion, that cut. That cut doesn't even make sense. Uh, I had never seen it. I've only seen this one. And this isn't even the finished cut. They want to add, like, another, I forget, like, 29 minutes oh, to for it. for fuck's they're, sake. They're still trying to get the rights to. Um, I, I'll say this. I do think that this is a good movie. It's just maybe not what you go into it expecting, and it's way longer than it needs to be. The parts of this movie that work are beautiful. They are almost, I mean, they're poetic. Like, it is. it is very much... Uh, on the level of The Godfather in terms of uh, the sort of emotional context to it and what it means to grow up and, and form an identity based on where you live. And, and I, I find all that stuff fascinating, but there is so, there's so much moody reflection 
that I feel doesn't serve the story as much as try and create uh, something very picturesque and, and, and epic that just doesn't need. Well, ultimately, you've got Robert De Niro as Noodles, who is, you know, we see at different stages of his life uh, when the movie is actually taking place is when he's older, probably in his 50s, maybe 60s. Um, he has come back to the town that he's from because it's clear that these people who were looking to kill him at one point found out where he was and are inviting him to attend this event. He wants to he's like. They know where I am, so they can get me if they want. So I'm going to go back there and figure out what's going on. And the movie flashes back both to, like, like the period right before he left, to the period when he was a little kid and forming his group of friends, to the period when they, his group of friends were all adults and starting to commit crimes, which were played by James Woods, James Hayden, who sadly died very shortly after the making of this yeah, film. Yeah. Playing a heroin addict. Yeah, that was the crazy died part. Died of a heroin overdose. Died of a heroin overdose six hours after a performance of David Mamet's uh, uh, American, American Buffalo, Buffalo. About a heroin addict. About a heroin addict, yeah. uh, And William Forsyth, the great William Forsyth. Yeah, who actually turns up, if you watch a lot of mob movies, he's in a shit ton Plays of pretty much in all of them, yeah. yeah at yeah. least one point in the background. And it's it's a little complicated, quite frankly, following the story at points as it flashes back and forth and back and forth. Some of it's a lot of fun. I really like the kid parts when they're all kids, following yeah. their identities. A very young Jennifer Connelly, who I actually had to double check and look online because she was so young, plays this girl who Noodle's character is falling in love with, who later on kind of becomes one of the more poignant parts of this film as the grown-up version of her, uh, played by Elizabeth McGovern, uh, He's trying to bring their relationship to an adult level, and ultimately, because all he understands is violence, it ends in violence. Right. And it's a really disturbing sequence. And in fact, one of the scenes where the extra feature, the extra footage is best served, there's a sequence where he's talking, trying to, to tip the limo driver involved. The limo driver's like, pretty much, go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I do appreciate about this movie, and the thing that kind of dawned on me with the longer cut, is I think what Sergio Leone, and I could be completely wrong... But I think what he was trying to do with this is take the concept of the mafia movie and make it almost like a, a Greek epic poem where you literally like something like the Iliad where that goes back through years and years and generations and generations of people's families. And so that you understand who these characters are by the time they get to the most important turning points of the story, that you understand every step of the way that they've taken in their youth. And then it does have a Greek tragedy type feel toward the end of it with how everything uh, winds up. So. I think maybe what we're really watching here is sort of the formulation of an American, an American-styled Greek legend. Oh, I, I, yeah, Greek tragedy. Greek tragedy. Sure. I mean, for it sure. is a tragedy, and like Noodles, Rob De Niro being the central character, uh, coming back to a pretty interesting twist I did not see coming in the end, which once again has a long sequence featuring Treat Williams uh, that was originally left out that explains that sequence so much better and makes yeah. it m much more sense. Um, like I said, it's a movie I do like, I even admire, but it's difficult to get through. Absolutely. Um, and you can, one nice thing is like, even though it seems like on the outside, this would, I wouldn't like the fact that they were getting the extra footage from a not great source. You can immediately tell when there's extra footage, it oh, looks yeah. differently, but I liked that because in retrospect, it makes you go, okay, did these add more to it or did it not? And I feel like it did. I feel like it did add to the quality of the film and the sense of really understanding of these characters were, especially because we see early in the film, uh, Noodles being very upset as he's going to get his girlfriend and his friend's like, no, they, they got to her already. 
And that's about all we get of her in the original cut of this film. Yeah. Like in this version, you actually get to know who she is and what their relationship meant and how that in and of itself was almost this tragic farce uh, of like a reflection of the, the woman he actually wanted to be with. That's a lot more interesting. There's a lot of stuff like that that does, in fact, work. But There's something to be said for, yeah, them not cleaning up the extra... Well, doing the best they could. I'm yeah. not saying they slapped it together. Right. It's just the best it was ever going to look. Th- because my concern was that as long as the original cut was, or the, I guess, the better cut that was released several years ago, was that I can't remember every single shot of every single scene because sure. it's such a long movie. I'm like, am I going to have to watch these side by side to know where the new footage is? Nope, not at all. You'll be able to tell yes. right off the bat. Uh, there's a few bonus features on here. There's an excerpt from the documentary Once Upon a Time, Sergio Leone, which is, runs at about 20 minutes, and uh, two trailers. But that's about it. Um, I mean, hell, they couldn't have probably fit anymore. The yeah. first four and a half hours long almost. It's, I'm surprised this is on one disc, to be honest with you. Right? <laughs> there's even an intermission sequence, but that there's no dip, disc flipping. Yeah, so, you don't have to flip the disc. You had to flip the original Goodfellas disc, for fuck's sake. Do you remember that? Yeah. The original like Warner Brothers release of Goodfellas on DVD? You had to flip that bitch. Yeah. There is actually a two-disc collector's edition of this that you can get, but the main stuff that you get with it is just the original cut of the film in a booklet. So There you have it. Yeah. Well, worth, worth a look just to kind of understand the history of this, because it is a really interesting sort of, uh, you know, all of the different versions and what Sergio Leone was trying to do. And, like, yeah, it's worth a look, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, I, I really do think it's a good movie. It's just... Be prepared because you feel like you're going to be watching a mob film in the terms you understand a mob film, and it's not that kind of movie at all. No. It's a mob movie marathon in one film. (laughs) So we're moving on from that to Grave Halloween. You remember how I said earlier how we were going to be reviewing two horror movies this week and they both sucked? Yes, I do remember that. Well, I didn't know this was made for the Sci-Fi Channel. (laughs) Yeah, so that was was an error on my part. (laughs) I probably would have skipped this entirely had I realized this. It does have a cool-looking cover, and I was like, ooh, I kind of like that. Maybe this is going to be good. And you honestly, with these directed or these DVD horror releases you've never heard of, man, you find a lot of gems by actually watching these. You I call it Redbox Roulette. Redbox Roulette. There yes. you go. Now, the thing about this is the title, Grave Halloween, the only conceit this makes to Halloween is that it just happens to take place during Halloween. Which doesn't make any difference because the whole movie takes place in the woods. <laughs> you know, there's no costumes or anything like that or trick-or-treat or jack-o'-lanterns or any of that. This is – it's in Japan in the creepiest place on the planet Earth, a real place called the Suicide Forest. It's at the base of Mount Fuji, I believe, where just a re- an incredible amount of people go kill themselves every year. It's like the Japanese Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, there are people whose whole job it is to just go in there and find the dead bodies and take them out. That's Yeesh. because they're they're kind. Of, I mean, there's like you go there anytime there'll be cars on the side of the road that are there because those are the cars that people went in there to go kill themselves. Jesus. And not everybody does. Some people go in there with the intent of doing it and change their mind and leave too. There's all sorts of like like things nailed to suicide notes nailed to trees and just weird like little artifacts that people left behind it's the creepiest place on the planet earth and they filmed a movie there that is the opposite of a creepy film (laughs) how can you fuck up something that has that much built-in potential well i'll tell you how First off, you get this, uh, they're all white people, <laughs> you know, wait, Uh-oh. why are they all 
all white people in Japan. Oh, they're exchange students. Okay, sure. Except sure, that the lead girl, who they keep telling us is Japanese, showing flashbacks about their parents are Japanese, yet clearly is not even Asian. <laughs> At best, she looks Filipino. Half Filipino. Oh, my gosh. I don't – I couldn't tell you exactly what her ethnic origin is, but there's no – doubt that she's not purebred pure blood asian i'm sorry just what how why why you couldn't get an actual asian woman to play this part the sci-fi channel's reach has uh diminished considerably i suppose but the idea is that apparently her mom her real life her real mom committed suicide when she was young and she's been living with foster parents in san francisco but Apparently her mom had committed suicide in the forest, and there's some time limit that you've got to go perform a ceremony to free her soul. Oh, She'll be boy. trapped in the forest. Losing interest. So she's in the forest to do this, but then, of course, like her friends end up fucking, like, making fun of stuff, and so the ghosts get angry, using the myth of the hungry ghost that wants souls, and so all these Japanese ghosts start popping up and fucking with them and killing them, and what I must admit are decent special effects uh, ways on the whole. There's one CG effect towards the end that's makes no sense, is really stupid, and looks horrible. But other than that, you're like, okay, you did some decent gore effects, but still, I go back to my whole thing of, like, if it's a ghost movie, there shouldn't be lots of people getting gored up. It's a ghost movie. Right. It's not a gore film. Why are these two things... Why do some people insist on connecting these two things together? I don't know. This absolutely doesn't work. Terrible performances, plot elements that make no sense at all, an ending that's laughable like laughably bad um at the best like one of the asian guys in this is played by somebody who'll recognize from lost but that's the only thing i can say that had any sort of me perk up for a second appeal i went oh that guy's from lost okay Uh, (laughs) and i'm over it this is just boring awful stuff um yeah. <laughs> yeah. Watching it seems to have been a grave mistake. The uh, the actress who uh, plays the, quote, Japanese girl is Kat- Caitlin Loeb, who played the three-breasted lady in the Total Recall remake. Oh. That's her previous role. That's that's something. That's I... Yeah, if that, you were a big fan of that, she's only got, <laughs> she's only got two boobs here. <laughs> and you don't see them, so I don't know what to tell you. Yes, it's absolutely pointless. This is – you can't believe – I don't even understand why they're there. They don't even clarify the rules of the thing. You're like, wait, what? Okay. Yeah, it's a miss. I hope somebody else makes a movie about this forest because it's fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. But this ain't that movie. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, moving on from Grave Halloween to Space Station 76. And by 76, we mean the year 1976, what sci-fi looked like at that point. They do a really good job in this film of reconstructing what the 1970s thought the future was going to look like. Oh, yeah. Very Logan's Run, very what have you, uh, Space 1999, that sort of thing. And even though the trailers make this look like a really goofy, wacky comedy... That's not what this movie is. No, it's it's wacky only in its conceit, I guess. And like, yeah. a, hey, look, this I mean, is what the 70s thought the future would be. It's got parts of it that are pretty funny. Like, there's a psychiatrist robot that is the scene stealer of the entire film. <laughs> yes. You know? Like, I'm like, upping your dosage to however much you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, by far the funniest scenes are with this robot. But the basic setup is very sad and all it's these really somber. depressed characters whose lives are terrible and messed up who are like... You know, 
like the the main character played by Patrick Wills and is the captain of, no he's not the main character but he's the captain of the ship and he's uh closeted homosexual and his story is just like I just wanted to start drinking yeah. when I was watching. I was like, Jesus Christ. Uh, and you've got Matt Bomer, who plays uh, this mechanic with a mechanical hand named Ted, who's married to this woman named Misty, who's a complete, like, she is the definition of a blonde and every joke about blondes ever told. And plus, she's a, like an annoying new age yeah. hippy dippy. Played by Marissa Coughlin. And she's cheating on him with Jerry O'Connell, who has nothing to do here, quite frankly. No. Uh, except fuck her. Yeah. Uh, and he meets a new girl come on the station, played by Liv Tyler, who is looking around the whole movie like she doesn't know why she's there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's uh, true. And she's forming this sort of friendship with Ted as well as her little kid, his little kid, his little girl. And you see that these two are supposed to be meant to get, be together, even though Misty, you know... A lot of people really liked this at South by Southwest. Uh, I was excited to see it and found that whereas I think that the the setting and the tone, uh, the setting is the most interesting thing about it. Like that idea, like you said, of how the 70s envisioned the future. But as a movie, it feels like like much of that setting could be removed and you would just have kind of a dull character film from the 70s. See, and I feel like <laughs> that might be the movie's biggest joke. Is that if you really watch all that sci-fi from the seventies, it's all somber and bleak and makes you want to start it's drinking, like silent running, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's like, and frankly, most of it, to be honest, I find pretty boring. Yeah, I like I, I find a lot of those movies to just drag ass so much that I'm like, just get to lo- just run, Logan. You're crawling right now. <laughs> um, but that being said, I don't. If that was the intention, I still don't think it works. Uh, I I enjoyed most of this movie. Because I thought it was building to something a little bit stronger. Yeah. There's no plot. You get to the end and it's like, there are hints that maybe things will be resolved, but nothing is in and of itself resolved in a satisfying way whatsoever. You know, this is based on a stage play for the record. Yeah, I can't imagine seeing this stage play. Well, I mean, it makes sense when you think of the fact that nothing happens in this movie. (laughs) It is all character and conversation based. I mean, which is fine if it was more interesting, but... I was pretty bored by everybody in this movie except the psychiatrist robot. (laughs) (laughs) Who only speaks in platitudes, which is really funny. Yeah. You cannot have friends until you are a friend to yourself. There's a point where one of these characters figures out the... The, basically the programming and how to make it say, like say stuff like how it responds it's kind of funny you're like okay there is no help yeah he just yeah. keeps doing word association where he's like um silver every cloud has a silver lining <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, i wanted to like this a lot more but ultimately i felt kind of let down by it um it's not terrible it's just part i mean partially it's not what i expected in the slightest you know, it's not what they sold it as. No, not at all. In the slightest. But, you know, I guess it's interesting in and of itself that nothing else like like this actually is out there, I suppose. Uh, the little girl is adorable in this and actually gives a good performance. Some of the scenes where uh, her father turns off the zero gravity so she can fly around a bit are actually kind of heartwarming. Yeah. And there are some nice moments. There are some genuinely funny moments, but it never really comes together. Uh, there's some extra footage in here, some three deleted scenes in here. There's seven minutes of outtakes. Uh, and then a making of, which is about 12, almost 13 minutes long with interviews, on-set footage, yada, yada. I don't know. I really don't see what everybody was so excited about. I guess I don't either. I, You know, like I said, I enjoyed it up to a point, but only – it was kind of like on the promise of something, you know, concluding in any kind of satisfying way, which it definitely did not. Nope. 
Well, that's going to bring us to the last title of the day, which is going to lead into, but not be the giveaway. And that is the Audrey Hepburn collection. Okay, I will say this. I think Audrey Hepburn is one of the most beautiful and classiest women who has ever lived. I agree. Um, there is just – talk about – I think it's where the term je ne sais quoi was invented for. <laughs> for her and the whatever it is that just makes her so magnetic. Those words did not exist together in France <laughs> until Audrey Hepburn. Well, it just wasn't an expression that we knew about. <laughs> I don't know if that – that's probably not true. But I, Could I, be. I, who knows? I, I still say – that she ha- has that je ne sais quoi in such a specific way. You can't really even put your finger on it. I mean, yeah, the neck, sure. I just love it. It's like she has a je ne sais quoi in a very specific way. She has a specific, I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's a very, yeah, because it feels. A vague specificity. She's like, like at any moment, she's going to turn towards you and her eyes will be totally black and or something. And you'll be like, oh, you're possessed by a demon. That would have been amazing. <laughs> but this is a collection of three of her best films, uh, which, you know, hey, Big shocker, Breakfast at Tiffany's. What? And I don't know about that. These are all that. films that have come out on Blu-ray recent, relatively recently, being re-released with all the bonus features that came with them. Breakfast at Tiffany's has a, a huge passel of bonus features on it. It is the definitive version of this film, and it's still absolutely wonderful romantic comedy. One of my favorites ever, starring George Pappard from The A-Team, and the most racist role <laughs> on a beloved film ever by Mickey Rooney playing a Japanese landlord. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little... Mm, but wonderful film, nominated for five Academy Awards. Uh, just so great. You've also got Sabrina, which was remade years later with... Uh, Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford. Was it Juliette Binoche? Was she the only character? I can't uh, remember. I don't remember, to be honest with but you. But this is a Billy Wilder film, directed and adapted for the screen by Billy Wilder. Julia uh, Ormond. Uh, with Humphrey Bogart, Audrey Hepburn, and William Holden. It is a wonderful, another romantic comedy, just a classic with great performances from everyone with a sort of like, you know, the poor daughter of a rich family, uh, you know, a poor daughter of a chauffeur for a rich family that falls in love with the the rich son of the family and the complications that ensue. And then you've got Funny Face, which is a Stanley Donen musical film uh, with lots of songs by George and Ira Gershwin. Um, although it's the same title as the Broadway musical, apparently it's a completely different plot and only four of the songs are included. But uh, you've got Fred Astaire, Audrey Hepburn, Kay Thompson, uh, really great, one of the great Hollywood musical films. And overall, this is like, I mean, if you want to have a, Audrey, a, a, you know, a collection of some of the best of Audrey Hepburn, this is a cheap cool way of getting them all packaged in a very thin package fits what, under shelf one movie i am disappointed it's not in there just because it's my absolute favorite is my wait, fair lady is wait until dark oh that is great it I thematically would movie. not have fit no in not at all but if you're really doing like here are the here are the best audrey hepburn movies, okay. and i know it's not the like, light and best light and fun audrey hepburn movies, fair enough fair which enough. is obviously the bulk of her career's work true you know but wait until dark is still my favorite film uh, okay fair enough <laughs> But uh, in terms of what the giveaway is this week, I'm actually going to be giving you my original copy of Breakfast at Tiffany's on Blu-ray, which is in flawless condition, because um, I ain't giving away the set because I didn't own the other two. <laughs> yes, that's right, folks. Here on Digital Noise this week, we are re-gifting! Yes, we are. And uh, this is it got all those extras. It's got a gorgeous slipcover. It's terrific. And here's what you got to do to win. Here's what you got to do to win. Well, as you know, we do a lot of... Uh kind of creative writing prompts here for our giveaways on digital noise so the first thing you're going to do is follow us on twitter at one of us net and then i want you to tweet at us with think about the uh the young actors working today the good the bad the in between who do you anticipate will have a very elaborate 
uh, stacked, full of special features, legacy collection in 40 years. Charming you know, Tatum. Ch- Charming Potato, the legacy collection. <laughs> and that's what I want you to tell us. And then I want you to hashtag that. Uh, which one? I'm sorry. Which one is it we're giving away? Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, breakfast giveaway, and we will pick our favorite, mm, and that person will win uh, this copy Danish of Breakfast. Is at breakfast. Tiffany's on Blu-ray. <laughs> Danish is at breakfast. That's the name of this episode. <laughs> we just found it. Awesome, and we're done. Wow, this was a long one. It was a long. One. We had a lot of titles to cover this week, so I feel like I run a marathon. It's partially Richard's fault because he had to leave early last week. We weren't able to finish. Fucking Richard. Guys, those Brits. Ah, every time. <laughs> oh no, I love Richard. But we'll thing. be back next week with me and Brian again because fucking Richard. Fucking Richard. <laughs> we got to do this show the way we started it. Whatever. <laughs> God, he's actually like in the crisis crux point of his writing. Uh, for the local Austin Chronicle, which he did win Best Journalist of the Year for this the is third why. year in a row for. So now he's got to write the whole paper, pretty much. Because while we watch Blu-rays and prattle on, he does actual journalist he's work. He's actually getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too, yeah. <laughs> well, that's it, guys. That's going to do it for another Digital Noise. Thanks for joining us. Uh, once again, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. You can like the website. Facebook.com slash one of us net. You can follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Bry Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And I want to remind you yet again to use those Amazon links. Please be, uh, consider becoming a subscriber and check out Nostalgia Destroyers on YouTube. I think that's all the general housekeeping stuff. I think it is too. So I believe I can end the show by saying, as I always do, no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Grave Halloween, <laughs> we review them all. Well, I, I do you did. Anyway. You did. <laughs>